Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we fiendishly read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are a vicious wrestling match between an author's empathetic, humanist worldview and his abject disdain for women. <laughs> yup. I was shocked by this. I, I, I was so in Jack Martin's corner before we read this damn book. <laughs> All right. Extending compassion to all men and children, these books pontificate philosophies about the ways in which capitalism and consumerism grind away at a society's soul, while also suggesting that the wives and mothers of the world never had souls to begin with. This contradiction, at once fascinated and disinterested in the health of the human psyche, makes for a fitful, uneven read. As beautiful, spiraling, paranoid prose intersect with childish, bullheaded hatred, one cannot help but wonder whether the author is going way too far in an attempt to get into the character's head, or whether they really are as talented as they are lacking self-awareness. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And my name is Hannah Blackman. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, is a 1982 science fiction horror film directed by Tommy Lee Wallace. It follows Dr. Dan Chalice, an alcoholic divorcee. <laughs> Dr. Dan is <laughs> the best name for a doctor. All doctors <laughs> should be named Dan, in my opinion. <laughs> Lots of good Dr. Dans in fiction. Anyway, this Dr. Dan is an alcoholic divorcee who witnesses the bizarre murder-suicide of one of his patients. When the man's daughter, Ellie, shows up wanting answers, Chalice and the May to his December work to unravel the mystery that obsessed the deceased man. What is the dark secret behind the wildly successful novelty toy company, Silver Shamrock? As Silver Shamrock's jaunty commercial for Halloween teases a countdown to some big happening, will Chalice and Ellie be able to unmask the maskers? Or will the grating jingle, repeated ad nauseum in both film and book, cause them to blow their heads off first? <laughs> Laughing at my own joke, but tr truly how I felt reading the book, I was going, I can't believe I'm finding the jingle as annoying in text. <laughs> I think it's really a catchy little ditty. It is. Like, it every is. time it happens in the movie, I'm like, doo, 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 doo. like I'm, I'm bopping. It is, of course, an established tune. It is sure. London Bridge. The thing that I hate about it is not the melody. The thing I hate about it is, dirt, 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 dirt. That part makes me want yeah. to die. Um, it makes me want to bop my little head. Yeah. <laughs> Halloween 3 was the first and only Halloween movie to not feature serial killer Michael Myers. After this attempt to turn the franchise into an anthology failed, Myers was reintroduced and essentially resurrected for Halloween 4, which we covered, which is awful, right? We hated Wait, it. You know what? I've got complaints about Jack Martin. I've got praise for Jack Martin. I got a lot of mixed feelings. Uh, yeah. He's beaten Grabowski. <laughs> Hands down. <laughs> and speaking of, the novelization of Halloween 3 was written by Jack Martin, based on the screenplay by Tommy Lee Wallace. It was published by Joe Books and Pumpkin Pie Productions Aww. in 1982. Darling. That's adorable. It is adorable. Our <laughs> guest today, one of the hosts of the horror podcast, the horror lifestyle podcast, The New Flesh as well as one of the hosts of the podcast for SportsAlcohol.com and an associate editor for Movies at Paste, as well as the guest on our Resident Evil, the final chapter, Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers, Halloween Ends, and a Life Less Ordinary episode. <laughs> Jesse Hassinger, five-timer, 
How you doing? Wow. Oh, it's like the SNL bit. Um, get your jacket. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me for five times. And four out of five for horror movies and one out of five we for sh- a Danny Boyle movie that I insisted on. We should have forced you on to talk about Saw 10 with us. <laughs> I've made the <laughs> rounds. I, 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 I was on some NPR show talking about Saw 10. I was like, I, now I know I've made it that someone calls me going, you, you want to talk about Saw? Uh. <laughs> yeah, what a dream. <laughs> to be considered an expert on the workings of John Kramer. Yes. <laughs> I was uh, I was delighted seeing you guys log it very, very soon. Like, you know, I, it, the movie came out and you guys logged it immediately. I was like, yeah, it's happening. Hannah, did you check out the, uh, the, the jigsaw joke I attempted in the show notes for Blood and Wine, which came out today? No. The the show notes for Blood and Wine are just there. I'm not saying it's good, but it made me laugh, which is I just wrote a joke that said John Kramer voice. <laughs> oh, yes, there will be blood perks up. And why? <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. And I think we should incorporate it as much as possible yeah. in all show notes. <laughs> I want us to always be talking about Saw. I know we're not here to do it today, but it's still very much alive in my heart. Are there are there, are there no Saw novelizations? There, maybe there are for the first couple or something? Only or? in Japan. Only in Japan. You guys taking a Japanese course? So, which I believe are also unofficial. I think they're Japanese and unofficial. I'd read them. <laughs> I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but there's an interesting grift that one author is pulling. And I it's good that I can't remember his name because we shouldn't promote him. But there's one guy who has somehow gotten himself listed on Goodreads as having novelized a bunch of movies that do not have novelizations. Presumably so that... So you go there and it'll be like saw by you know willie mctilly or whatever and you and it's his real name and you go there and there's zero reviews on goodreads but it's a way for you to be like oh i want to get more saw content and now i'm thinking about this guy it's got to be an intentional (laughs) grift how could he do that to us the fans of saw and doesn't he know that he's risking no punishment that's the thing i mean this guy has not seen (laughs) saw 3d because he essentially (laughs) is sean patrick flair if the jigsaw killer was real he would have this guy hanging from hooks but yeah he does it for a bunch he he allegedly has novelized a bunch of recent movies that have not been he's a he's a fucking menace wow Anyway, whatever. So, Jesse, you've seen Halloween <laughs> 3 before, and how do you feel about it? Yeah, uh, I have weird mixed feelings about Halloween 3, because I, but I think it all just be chalked up to having seen it more times than is natural. I think a one, a one time for this movie is very natural. And <laughs> I've seen it at least three times, which is crossed at some point. I think halfway through the second time, it probably crossed into unnatural territory. Um <laughs> Because, of course, the first time I saw it, I was like, this is so cool that they made one that's, like, not Michael Myers, uh, trying to make this an anthology. It's basically a Twilight Zone episode. It's got sci-fi. Uh, really, those cool, iconic masks, the jingle, perfect for your Halloween horror lifestyle t-shirts, those masks, and the, or the silver shamrock logo. Very jazzed after I saw it for the first time. Uh, which I think I, I think I watched a bunch of Halloweens before the 2018 David Gordon Green one came out, and I, but I didn't. I think I watched one through three and then called it a, called it a night. And then later for the New Flesh, the podcast that I co-host with uh, with my pal Brett, we did the series, so I watched it again. And then 
and then my, my friends and I watch usually watch a movie together lately over Zoom or what have you on Halloween together because now we have all of kids and it's kind of a pain to get together. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll, we we'll try to watch like a horror movie, and the idea at first was to watch a horror movie classic. Uh, that maybe my my friend Maggie could take because she just can't watch really scary stuff. But then we they, like we like burn through a lot of the classics. So then it sort of became like, well, what's something that's fun and horror-y, but not like you know, not, not gore, not saw, yeah, not like it's not something that's really grueling. And my poor pal Nathaniel, who's so smart about movies, he's one of the smartest like movie geek pe- type people I know, is sort of charged with figuring out what the movie can be. And I feel like Halloween 3 was a weird compromise choice last year. And I was like, sure, yeah, Halloween 3, cool, cool. You're like, yeah, it's a, that's a cool one. And then, like, no one else liked it. And they were all like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what the fuck are you guys doing? <laughs> like, why did you make us watch this? This is really bad. It, 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 made me, it did make me feel a little more sane because I watched that movie and was like, this Tom Atkins guy's got no charisma. And all the horror people in my feed were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, I totally disagree with that. That he has no charisma? in the middle. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, and then watching it, my friends, they were like, yeah, no, this guy's the zero. He has no charisma. This is horrible. Uh, And I liked liked the movie more than they did. But anyway, that's all to say that, like, knowing they had this reputation, this movie that sort of, like, was a huge flop that people hated, it's this cool thing to appreciate. But then watching it a few times, I don't know that it really stands up. Do I like this more than Halloween 2? Like, in principle, I do, but, like, do I actually ever, like, I could have watched it It'll again. Watchability. Yeah, yeah, Maybe in not. terms of, like, do I, did I want to watch it for this podcast, even though I wanted to talk about it? No, and I neglect, I did not. <laughs> I was, like, I think three times is enough. How many fucking times can I watch Season of the Witch? And I think the answer is three. Maybe in, like, five or six years, I'll be up for another watching of it, but I just don't think it quite has enough for you you know yeah it's a novelty like the silver shamrock perfect for the silver shamrock it's a novelty thing you watch it once and this is really cool and it doesn't really you know the david gordon green runs i can watch again and and of course the original i can watch again but this one is uh it's certainly better than four five six seven h2o was that seven i don't know but uh i don't you know i kind of burned myself out on it but i was curious have you guys you guys i'm sure had seen it before this hannah yeah, no, I had seen it um, when Gorley and Rust did their Halloween sequence. I watched all of the Halloweens with them. So I had seen it then and thought it was kind of cool, but not so cool that I was into it. You know, like I, I like you was like, I don't need to watch this ever again. I think the main guy is kind of not exciting and kind of gross, <laughs> yeah. kind of a skis. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting element for a horror a movie period to have your main character be an unlikable piece of shit. But it not something that I not the kind of piece of shit that I'm going to latch on to emotionally yeah. as I do sometimes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I had seen it; it's fine. And then I watched it again this afternoon and like was on my phone for quite a bit. Of it, I'm afraid to say it's pokey, man. That it's gets it's got some stretches in it. Yeah, <laughs> before it gets to the good stuff. Andrew, how about you? I think it's my third favorite Halloween movie, probably. And and, and uh, similar to what Jesse said, I mean, there's so many bad ones that maybe that's not such a radical thing to say. <laughs> but I really enjoy how drunk the movie feels, in addition <laughs> to Atkins be- playing a character who's an absolute lush. Uh, watching this so close to Blowout, I 
I was thinking, this is such a, a weird subgenre of film where you have guys who seemingly have unlimited money and social cachet, and yet the whole movie is, but I'm the underdog, or <laughs> I'm up against the wall. Uh, there's a weird charm to it. I, I, I like how the logic of the film is so kooky, so nonsensical, that for me it almost works, right? Like, even when you hear the villain's master plan, it's like, what was it again? <laughs> right? Like, there's. I mean, very fun that when he's like, why would you do this? And the villain's like, cuz? Why not? <laughs> like, no real motivation. My favorite scene of the movie where the, the villain sits him down and goes, here's my uh, big Bond villain monologue. I'll explain everything to you. And then the, everything he says is absolute nonsense. <laughs> he's like, when I take my shoes off, little, little gloopy glorps come out. And those are my friends. And he's like, and that's why. <laughs> I mean, the sort of movie where if you think about it a little too hard, the question of why are you investigating this at all comes up. It's very hard to justify why they do any of the things that they do. Yeah, it's like, I think that a lot of it does kind of come back to what you were saying, Hannah, about uh, the, the protagonist of the film. That, of course, it can be interesting to watch a guy who's kind of down and out and sort of, a, you know, an alcoholic or kind of a loser. But... The movie is not written. It's it's like this kind of weird dipshit noir where he's like, it's like it's kind of like <laughs> he stumbles into this because he's horny for a young woman. Yeah, that's that's noir. I kind of dig that aspect of it, <laughs> but it's not played for laughs. But it's also not played as sad as it should be. That he's like supposed to see his kids and is just kind of impulse goes with this woman to investigate something that does not have the same debt like it does have a deadline that we know later that it needs to happen before Halloween but he doesn't know this there's no reason he couldn't go mm -hmm. the next day uh or you know yeah. or not go at all as you say <laughs> and that's not I mean I think in a certain sort of noir context you like that but in the context of calling up your kids and being like sorry I know it's Halloween but uh I met this chick, and I really got to know what happened to her dad. So, <laughs> especially in, like, him being a doctor. Again, that's a cool idea. Again, for, like, a kind of noir protagonist to also be a physician. But it's hard to believe that he is one. Um, mm -hmm. Based on <laughs> whether it's based on the performance or the writing. I think it's... I actually let blame Tom Atkins less, having read the book now. Because I'm like, oh, I don't believe he's a doctor in this either. <laughs> even though there's no person on screen. Uh, it's, like, it's weird to have a doctor get really obsessed with w this one guy who dies. Because uh, presumably he's he talks about how he's seen this happen. Not this specifically, maybe. But he's seen people die all the time. So it's it just doesn't read as a very good excuse to I know that's like weird policing the characters, you know, actions or feelings, but it doesn't it just is like kind of played in this sort of weirdly casual way where it doesn't It's not enough to pull me the viewer along with him. Yeah. I and just want him to go to his kid. I also have to be kid. curious about the mystery right. and I'm not. <laughs> I'm curious about why he doesn't why he is so resistant to seeing his kids on Halloween for a few hours. It seems like a, <laughs> like a small ask. I don't know if that's just a weird dad thing, but I'm like, no, go be with your kids. Like, come on. Do the other thing later. Be nicer to your ex-wife. Yeah, be nicer to your ex-wife. Is that is that hard? Doesn't seem that hard. The movie I I feel like portrays him as an alcoholic. I mean, let's just talk about the movie's relationship with alcohol because it's sort of it's sort of interwoven with everything we're discussing. He's a deadbeat dad 
because he drinks so much. There's even a, a moment in the movie where she goes, oh, drinking and operating. That's a class act or whatever, because he's going <laughs> to the hospital drunk. Uh, the, the strange thing is that the movie comments on that and deliberately writes in he's boozing left and right. But the movie thinks it rules. They never, <laughs> they never interrogate, oh, does he have a problem? Is, is he wrong to be doing this? Is he engaging in a delusion you know, that, that this woman has because he has already separated himself so far from reality. I just find it so strange that they put so much emphasis on his drinking in the film and then don't deal with it in any way. Yeah. I'd much prefer the way the drinking is handled in the book, which I do think is a much more like, dude, you gotta cool it on the drinking attitude. Yes. That, like, the book is very clear that, like, the only reason he meets the, like, drifter in the town is because he's like i need a drink right now yeah i'm desperate so i have to go find a drink meets the guy who tells him about like you know they brought in all the outsiders to work here and he gets that bit of information the way that that feels like important to the plot i handled well in the book Mm -hmm. very like loosey-goosey nothing in the movie and then it kind of falls off like once he's in the meat of the action he isn't like jonesing and shaky which i kind of would like to see the repercussions like yeah unfortunately you are the kind of alcoholic who now can't handle yourself in a bad situation (laughs) be an interesting sort of hiccup to the end of the plot the book has such a strange stance on this guy as well uh it puts so much emphasis as you say on the drinking and it also puts so much emphasis on how horrible his relationship with the ex-wife is but it's engaging with the ex-wife in a similar way to the way the movie engages with the alcohol where it's saying look at this terrible relationship isn't it awful we're gonna take everything he says at face value yeah i mean as you say is the intro this book hates the ex-wife more than I've ever seen a book hate a a female character. Like, we read a lot of misogynistic books, and this one was so nasty about her. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, Andrew, are you chewing on glue? Don't do that. I'm just (laughs) chewing on the outside of a glue bottle. Don't do it. Chew on something else, please. (laughs) All right, I'll try it. That's not good. Look, he can't. That's not a good call. He kicked the liquor habit, and that's what he's now. He just chewed (laughs) on it. And I totally understand that, and now you have to chew on something. Yeah, yeah. don't chew on glue. <laughs> I did you something sub glue. Yeah. Yeah. Chew on your phone case. Do you have any fun tack? Like, that's that's that stuff comes right off. I chewed on my phone case a lot, now the corners are missing. <laughs> okay? So not very effective as a phone case anymore. Um I get you like a dog toy to chew on. Let's talk about this book somewhat sequentially. I, I do want to get mm-hmm. to the wife stuff as we approach it. The the beginning of the book. Uh, makes a choice right away. Who's to say if it's because the script dictated it or what have you? But the beginning of the book starts with our man. Well, let's talk about the epigraphs first. There's three of them. I say each of us reads one. Jesse, you want to read the first one? Yes. If a way to the better there be, it lies in taking a full look at the worst. Thomas Hardy. <laughs> what is this about? <laughs> um... I guess yeah. To I, you have to power. You have to 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 take real. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing to put in front of this book particularly, right? It's a. It, he's saying that if if you if you can make yourself better, you have to face the worst parts of yourself. Not something Dan Challenge is doing. <laughs> he doesn't. He 
he doesn't care to do that. Or he his idea of the worst parts of himself is like, oh, I really suck that I married that chick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and even if it's saying you have to look at the worst parts of the world in order to repair it, right. also not what Dan right. Chalice is doing. No. Or capable of. Right. If it applies to the macro plot, it's very confusing because it is not a universal lesson. Oh, in order to better myself, I better go face down the demon companies that are trying to murder the children. (laughs) The second epigraph. It was my intention to set down the story of what happened to myself and to a little group of my friends. And I soon discovered that what was happening to us was happening to everyone. Kenneth Patchen. The Journal of Albion Moonlight. Uh. Sorta? Uh. He's. Dan goes on an investigative journey with him and a girl, thinking it's about them and her dad, only to learn the whole world is at stake. It's R- not graceful. Right. So. This is to be taken extremely literally, this very. This, this very poetic sounding passage. It's supposed to be. The masks we thought would just kill our own children were there to kill them all. Hannah. Yeah. Halloween will come, will come. Witchcraft will be set a-going. Demons will be at full speed, running in every pass. Avoid the road, children, children. Traditional. You ever heard this one before, you guys? <laughs> we, I, my, yeah. I sing it every night before bed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do feel like I have a grip on how this one applies. <laughs> I do get shades of Halloween in the book. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And shades of child stuff. A little bit. <laughs> child stuff. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Okay. So just I'm just going through the pages here. Uh, my first gripe with the book. Uh, this guy does not know what a prologue or an epilogue Thank is. Thanks. I was gonna say Correct. this I was gonna say the same thing. I finished this book like half an hour ago. Uh, so I had forgotten because I had been reading over a few days um, that the, about the prologue thing, which actually makes more sense now because I just read the epilogue like it like you know a couple hours before we recorded this, and I was like, "What the fuck? This is fully the climax of, yeah. <laughs> of yeah. the book uh, and the movie. It's not an epilogue. An epilogue is something you should be able to write. I don't know. Is it something you should be able to not read and have still have the book?" Make sense? I don't. I'm never sure, like how, what you know, what the formal definition of it is. But it's not this. I think it is the chapter version of falling action. Yeah, right. right. Where it's the the. I the think plot. everything should be done, and the epilogue yes. is like, and now here's what happened to our character. Stop chewing on glue, Andrew. <laughs> okay. Stop chewing on glue. So, the the thing about for the listener, the thing about the prologue and the epilogue, the prologue is just the beginning of the movie. And it includes the plot setup. Yes. So there's no pro happening at all. We're just logging. And then yes. the epilogue, as Jesse said, even more egregiously, it essentially goes, okay, so Dan Chalice is tied up in the Silver Shamrock warehouse. All the children in the world are about to die. Epilogue. He goes and fights <laughs> everyone and saves the day, maybe. And it's like... Dude, that is like, I could not close the book there. That would be crazy. (laughs) Yeah. The first chapter makes a very specific choice, which is to have Chalice be forefronted instead of Mm -hmm. in the film where it starts at the gas station with Grimbridge, Ellie's father, running up and then uh, collapsing and all that stuff, right? So the the, Martin does this a couple times in the book where he throws you 
a thing that is said as fact. And then a couple pages later, they go, of course, that wasn't actually the case. So the first line of the book is, Chalice was dead. And then he's like, he's, you know, basically uh, super tired and he's sitting in the break room at the hospital. He's listening to the Silver Shamrock jingle, which is so damn annoying. And we get a lot of, I mean, Jack Martin's prose are so, uh, to me, so entrancing. And he really does have a way with sort of the internal mind. And and you're like, what does it mean Chalice was dead? He's the protagonist. And then a, a page or two in, it goes, he was just so tired. It was like he was dang dead. Yeah. Like, Come on. <laughs> I, I'm also, he also, I mean, it's certainly punchy to just say Chalice was dead, but he missed opportunity that he didn't get to Christmas Carol it and say Chalice was dead to begin with. I was, yeah. I was immediately disappointed <laughs> that he didn't do that. Mm. Yeah, mm. if you're going to do the little wink, do the wink properly. And, like, if that's the theme you want to live in, right? That, like, Chalice is... He can't win here, right? It doesn't matter. His life is over from the moment this story starts. Maybe do more with it. Yeah. Do anything with it. Yeah. Play with it. Yeah, then that is, that's a very noir conceit, doesn't. you know? That, he's, that mm-hmm. he's sort of doomed from the start. But it, it's, more, it's, it's more confusing here than anything. I, and you're right, Andrew, there's some other... There's something later too, where something it's it's it ta- Grimbridge's ta- death, where yes. it it it, mm. it it is described to us as Chalice having a dream yes. during a nap in the yes. hospital, and we see a lot of his dreams throughout the book. And so when they say he's having a dream, it's like okay, of course we I see that all the time. And then in the dream, Grimbridge is killed. And at the end, when he's watching the burning car after the assassin commits suicide, uh, Chalice thinks it was too vivid to be a dream. He just wished it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, annoying. It is. He does. I, I do like I, I think I'm probably going to agree with you guys a lot about the stuff in this book, because it was the uh, I do like his descriptions of things really well like I, th- I think he does that much i mean some of the dialogue is roughly taken from the movie so that's not i guess some of it's not his fault but when he's describing you know sort of a mood or sort of or an action even i think it's very uh very involving and very you know it's it's very writerly in a good way in a way that kind yeah, of is- he goes on some nice tears about like our relationship with machinery our relationship with consumerism and in ways that are really interesting and like good well written <laughs> Yeah. And then immediately he's like, and also that fucking bitch of an ex-wife, <laughs> yes. huh? Yeah. <laughs> like, just a slap in the face. Yeah. Jack Martin, of course, we encountered previously in uh, the Videodrome novelization, which we I'm seeing we covered with some, some washed-up hack, uh, Brett Arnold. Oh, that guy. <laughs> uh, which was a book that I at least unequivocally loved. And I, I think the difference is... I think this guy's a great writer. I think he has a real way with words. I think the difference between these two books for me is that he seems to like Halloween 3 a lot less as a movie and doesn't really get what it's doing. And I don't know that it is doing as much, right? Videodrome, you can make these sort of like grand thematic theses about. Halloween 3, not so much. And so... Yeah, he throws out ideas where he goes, oh, this is about consumerism or this is about the decay of the American household. But then he never he never goes any place with these ideas because he doesn't respect or understand the movie, in my opinion. But the other thing is that, as we've said again and again, Videodrome, I guess because it had to do with a hot lady who wanted to fuck you, it just didn't touch on how much Martin is willing to go 
women be bitches. Yeah. I mean, I think it's quite telling that Ellie, as a character in his novel, is essentially like a sex pot baby doll and eventually is completely infantilized. She is made into a child. Yeah, that part's insane. <laughs> yeah. That part's fucking insane. We'll get, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. In this early section of the book, I do want to talk about the ways in which it is playing with the Michael Myers yes, 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 this is cool. so Wild. cool and interesting and weird. The when we get out of the prologue, the first major like chapter title break is the night he came home again. Mm-hmm. Yes, which of course is the tagline of Halloween: the night he came home, and it casts our hero in the role of Michael Myers, the man who is going home. Fascinating. And throughout this whole section, he's being followed by strange shapes. Yes. And I, the reader, was like, is he just in, in, like dovetailing with Halloween original? And are we just like crossing paths with Michael Myers, but he doesn't know it? And Dan's about to go on his own non-Michael Myers experience while Michael is doing a killing rampage somewhere? Cool. Yeah. Not true. No. But conceptually, very intriguing. Oh, very much. It's, what's weird is that given that he does that, I don't know if that's... He must just be trying to bring some Michael Myers teasing into it. I mean, this was presumed... <laughs> like, presumably was going to be maybe read by some people who hadn't seen the movie yet or something. Because it's, we- like, it's get weird that he does that, but then it preserves something you don't really need to preserve in a novelization, which <laughs> is a visual in-joke... About uh, where a TV in a bar is showing, you know, tomorrow night or whatever, you see that Halloween, the original, is going to play on one of the channels. And there's an mm-hmm. ad for it. And typically you don't need to, I mean, this is, a, of course, a book that has to recreate some TV background stuff in order to get the ad go. The famous jingle that, that they are able to recreate and print. Dun, so dun, it makes dun, more dun, sense. Dun, 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 yeah. dun. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> My kid, my kid knows the jingle and everything. It's great. Um, the the like it's so it makes more sense here than some places to have background stuff from from TV make it into the book. But they verbatim re, like dis, uh, uh, reproduce and describe the ad for the 1978 Halloween. There's a uh, transcription of the trailer yes. in in the book. The yeah. book stops yes. down to go. You know, a young woman walked down the street. A hulking figure was in the back, only seen to the audience. Text appeared on the screen. This Halloween, <laughs> you know, he comes home yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It's like I've seen the trailer. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just a weird. It's a weird choice because, as Hannah points out, it's such a cool idea. To, the idea that like there's a kind of a you know there's a couple shimmers of Michael Myers in the background of this book that don't get developed. But then to also just say, oh well, it's nah, it's just a movie. Like it. I don't know. It's that that feels like it. Weird. Yeah. It, it's, there it's, is a part on page 29. It's the end of a chapter where he's been seeing funny stuff. And then there's this line where Dan Chalice says, it's the boogeyman, thought Chalice, feeling nothing in particular about the realization yet and drove on. Which like, if Jack Martin is perhaps trying to wrangle with how this story connects to Halloween and Halloween 2. It's the boogeyman, right? It's this horror in the background. And he's like, I guess the horror in the background is the silver shamrock guys, right? Here you go. That's the connective thread. I've done it. (laughs) And now we'll move on. Like he puts the bow there and then doesn't come back to that concept, which would be great. Because like, 
now that I have that idea, I'm like, okay, cool. I love this anthology concept of like, what's the boogeyman to us all? Is it Michael Myers? Is it the corporation out to kill us? Is it something else that we never found out about because they backpedaled really hard on the concept? Cool. Could have been really cool. I would have loved to see him explore that more. I feel like Halloween 3 really fails to deliver on this is the same thing you expect to get from a Halloween movie, just with different events and characters. I really don't think the movie pulls off the feel of the other Halloween films, nor even like the the, the vague themes. I, it feels more like some sort of wacky, sort of congealed <laughs> Twilight Zone episode, uh, which it, elements that are not present at all in one and two. Uh, but I want to talk more literally for a second. In the movie, I believe that the inclusion of Halloween on the TV screens, which comes up twice, once early in the film and then once later when he's in captivity, and it's kind of revealed that Halloween and Halloween 2 are the horror-thon that Shamrock is putting on and that at the end of that, everyone's head's going to explode. I believe that introducing that early in the movie is a reminder to the audience in 1982 We advertise this as an anthology. It is not connected to Michael Myers. I know we already told you that, but get it through your damn head. This is not even in the same universe. Do not expect him to be out there. And in that way, I think it's very effective. In the book, because, you know, I want to get things from a novelization that I'm not going to get from a film, I'm very excited by the idea that Jack Martin is going, I'm reversing that. I don't give a fuck about Tommy Lee Wallace. I am going to have Michael Myers walk into this movie. And I believe, as we said, he is textually in this book. He is lurking in scenes early on and... I think those are Silver Shamrock guys, but no, they are not. I like it they better. They're not if Silver Shamrock guys. Okay, I'm let's... just trying to exist within the world of the story as given. In which case, they are just Silver Shamrock guys being spooky. Or it's even you know him. He he's like in an alcoholic stupor, you know, seeing stuff out of the seeing corner of his eye. Hooligans yeah, in the backyard. Yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. So sorry <laughs> to have interrupted your Michael Myers thought. I would love it if he was in this movie. Lurking at the edges. I think he's teasing us more, yeah. (laughs) I believe that Michael Myers is literally in the book. I think that Martin is just having a little bit of fun, but he's having fun in a way that is not fun for me. Because even (laughs) if there isn't a a massacre at the end, like, I mean, it'd be great if Michael Myers showed up and killed the Silver Shamrock guys, right? Whatever. (laughs) But even if that doesn't happen, I want something to come back. Even if it's a stupid... You know, in the final moments, it's teased that Michael Myers is still there. The thing that bothers me is that the idea of Michael Myers looms large at the beginning of the book and then is completely dropped. We're never reminded of him Mm -hmm. later on. Yeah, agreed. It kind of sets you up for something that's doing something a little more, you know, one of those things you can do in a book that you couldn't, a novelization that you couldn't necessarily... I mean, you could obviously you could put Michael Myers in the movie, but they clearly in the movie wanted to really have a kind of clean break. This is an anthology now. But in the novel, you can be a little more playful with that kind of thing. And he sort of reminds us that that's possible before uh, abandoning us on the side of the road. I mean, think of the number of children who could have been saved because they were being chased by Michael Myers in the streets, not watching (laughs) TV. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. At least you're going out into the world when you're being stalked by Michael Myers. (laughs) Yeah. Take a walk. Catch some grass. (laughs) 
there is kind of yeah there's definitely a weird not that that weird because it's it's, it's i kind of wondered reading it how much of this was prescient or relevant today you know in terms of like the kind of uh media media brainwashing or like sort of you know you could draw any number of parallels to other things not so much network television anymore but something else um but at the same time i was like i had to remind myself well this not that you don't want to give it points for being maybe sort of prescient but this was written in like 1982 so it's also sort of just generic cranking about tv you know <laughs> like which <laughs> yeah. i guess is fair like and that was that was the thing of the day that you could crank about with, with this stuff but uh, I was constantly going back and forth between, which is I think is fitting for, for kind of how this book works, between going, oh, he's, you know, he's getting at something sort of, you know, about the alienation we feel because of technology and, and media and how disconnected we can be from each other. Uh, and then kind of then some swing back to like, ah, he's just like an old man being like, damn kids watching TV. like <laughs> Yeah, his his point of view really oscillates between, oh, this is kind of poignant. So here's a here's a passage where I think he's a bit poignant. It's on <clears throat> 68, and he says uh, he's arguing with someone right about the the media that that children consume. So they're watching some bit of violence on TV, and this guy Charlie says beats the news, wars, murders. Does it, Charlie? Charlie popped his beer belly on the stainless steel sink and rewashed the glass. The, there was lipstick on the rim. So many typos in this fucking book. Uh, pour me another one. Help yourself. And then it says, that's not real life. Right, said Charlie. My niece's kid, he sees the 4 o'clock news, the 6 o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news, every kind of news there is. I'm waiting for him to blow some kid away on the playground one of these days. Uh-huh, said Chalice, shaking his head. I tell her not to let him watch all that crap, but you can't protect him. It's in the movies now, all over the TV. And then Chalice argues with this guy. He says, no, I don't think so. Telling the truth isn't the same thing as advocacy. And then hilariously, the bartender just goes, what? (laughs) He just (laughs) didn't understand that. And he goes, kids understand the difference. I'm not so sure about that. Well, I am. Did real life wars, all that stuff we went through, turn uh, you and me into maniacs, Charlie? And then they argue a bit more. <laughs> well, well, I like I like that his response to this. Well, you know, well, <laughs> you're, then, in the, you're you're in here with me, buddy. So maybe <laughs> they, they talk about that a bit more. And then he says, uh, "We're afraid to let them grow up." This is Chalice. At least that's the way it seems to me. What do you think's going to happen the first time somebody takes a swing, tries to mug them in the bathroom at Chuck E. Cheese's? Their super friends with their superpowers won't be enough, and they'll get their little asses kicked around the block, or worse. This is Truly interesting. Truly a man who like beats his children to like <laughs> teach them a lesson about the world. Like, oh yeah. This is so fucked up. Oh yeah. Look, I I don't agree with what Chalice is saying here, <laughs> but I do think that in this in this passage he is having sort of a complex thought about media consumption and then in other parts of the book he's just going sometimes we look at the TV and that's bad for us. <laughs> and have you ever realized that money doesn't equal objective value? Like, he kind of turns into Act One Tyler Durden sometimes. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, right, he is correct that watching TV is bad for you, right? <laughs> Especially within Season of the Witch, watching TV will turn your brain into bugs. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, 
all of this bitching about like kids these days watch too much. T- he's right. <laughs> and <laughs> he's, I, and it's, it's very prescient because now people watch too much TV because they don't they don't watch enough movies and they watch too many shows. So that's that's what <laughs> right. he's talking about, right? <laughs> of course. Go to the cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Engage intellectually. <laughs> Put your phones down. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with anything Dan Chalice is saying. I just think many aspects <laughs> of this book are inconsistent, and his worldview is one of them. Because sometimes he's going, you know, here's the least profound thing you've ever heard. And other times he's going, I've actually thought my fucked up views through very much, and I'm ready to defend them. And the thing that really, mm-hmm. that knocked me in the book is after he goes on these diatribes about media consumption, the more well-thought-out ones, when the villain does his monologue at the end, I thought, why isn't Dan Chalice going, buddy, you are speaking my language. Untie me, and I will put the masks on these kids. However, I like children because I have some. Maybe we shouldn't kill them. (laughs) Well, even that, I don't know that he even does. I mean, maybe low-hanging fruit to knock it for this, because again, that's, that's kind of from the movie. But does he like having kids he likes thinking about having kids he likes th- fair enough he likes thinking about oh boy she's keeping me from seeing my son and another child who i'm not mentioning as much uh, but like, <laughs> yeah but he doesn't what is it really... called again when you have a girl son yeah. <laughs> definitely That's a like, borat yeah. joke i yeah. just stole this is my son and his sister. <laughs> yeah. He, t- he kind of whinges on about a, a lot of that stuff, but he does not seem in a, he just is kind of defeatist about the whole, oh, well, when I, when I go over there, they're going to be mad at the present, that I, my bad present is bad. And, you know, it's kind of this very defeatist attitude where he's sort of like, I've already lost the children and because of this ex-wife, blah, blah, blah. So it, it's also, I don't know. I mean, I guess that could be seen as like ironic punishment that he's then racing to, in a panic to save his children. But as with a lot of stuff in the movie, it's hard to tell what's supposed to be sort of rich irony or sort of, you know, intentional characterization and what's just like kind of slapdash and like saying <laughs> he doesn't care about his kids until like, well, their sp- lives are specifically threatened. And then suddenly it's, you know, suddenly it's the most important thing in the world. And I think the book is trying to bridge that a little bit. I think it's trying to give him the interiority where he is, he, his kids come up more in the book than they do in the mm-hmm. movie. In the movie, they're pretty much forgotten until the, until the specter of them being killed along with every other child in, the, in America is raised at the very end. He's just pretty much forgets about it. In the book, he is thinking about them, but he's not like, not in a way that really shows a lot of love or care. It's more because he thinks of them about how they affect him or how they're an extension of him. How they're being leveraged against him by his awful ex-wife. Yeah, yes, how they're being, yeah, exactly. How how bad they make him feel by noticing when he's a shitty father. Uh, it's, it's very, there's a lot of aggrievement in this. <laughs> and again, these things could be like compelling and sympathetic and interesting. And I don't think they are, period. Yeah. Certainly not in the movie. And not in the book, really, either. Like, he's a much richer character in the book, definitely. Yeah. And all of these diatribes and all of these philosophical tangents make him a more interesting person to spend time with. But he's still not a guy I want to spend time with. Yeah, the, I could see, you, know? you can see the author trying to fill out the fact, the thing that, that Andrew mentioned, that this movie... As much as I do think it's kind of neat and enjoy it, it's a 45 minute. I mean, I feel like I've seen, said this about a bunch of movies, horror movies I've seen recently. This is a 45 minute uh, episode, you know, 
it could be probably a 25 minute episode if you really cut it down tight um but let's be generous and say 45 it's an anthology episode uh, I, I i don't know if you guys have been watching the uh criterion 90s horror stuff uh mm. that they put up uh they have like in the mouth of madness a carpenter actually and I that had been so hyped for me after being sort of like a lot of Carpenter's movies. It was like not very well respected upon release. And then, the you know, the horror heads got a hold of it and they're like, this is really cool. So I finally watched it and I was like, yeah, this would be a really cool 45 minute anthology episode. And I feel like there are a lot of horror movies that have cool ideas or cool vibes or whatever that would be great for like a kind of horror focused Twilight Zone. And I can see the author of this book trying to kind of... Get get the, make this a little fuller. Make it feel like a little more of an experience. But it feels stretched thin, even on the page. Even with the advantage of some more, you know, languorous and in a good way, like kind of painterly descriptions that you don't. <laughs> the movie is pretty, you know, straightforward. It's not the most atmospheric horror movie I've seen. And he really does try to like describe some atmosphere in in the in these pages, but. It kind of feels like he's, you know, okay, let's get the, let's get this baby over 200 pages. Let's really show them this is like a full thing. And I yeah. don't know if it really comes across. There's so many ways that you could streamline this story um, that would benefit it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it'd be so easy to be like, oh, the guy who lit himself on fire had like a silver shamrock something. So we go to the silver shamrock place. Right. You don't need Ellie at all. Yeah. Spoken like a true woman. I I think we all get why he goes with Ellie. I think we all get why we need Ellie. I mean, I appreciate the couple extra scenes in the book where he like sees her crying at the hospital, feels a lot of guilt that it happened under his watch, goes to the funeral, sees her again, feels a lot of guilt that it happened under his watch. And also she's very pretty. And then when they meet at the bar, you're like, well, he feels indebted to this girl because he let her father down as a doctor. And also she's very pretty. So sure, he's going to go with her. A guy she doesn't know. There's some passage in the book where he's like, she doesn't know me at all. I could be a psycho killer. Good point, dude. I made a joke uh, about being horny, but uh, I actually find it weird and kind of predatory the way he meets her and she just seems to be sort of a blank slate <laughs> and she's this doe-eyed kind of you know they don't give her like any characterization in the in the book or the film and he very quickly jump jumps to i have to smash and i love her maybe <laughs> and it made me go yeah. are you stupid what are your standards <laughs> yeah are you guys okay <laughs> i mean the the scene we're in they first hook up in the book is much she's so forward like, in the movie, it's a little coy on both their parts, and then they there's that sex scene that is totally extraneous. Like, And I'm pro-sex scene in movies, but it's it's just like, look at this girl half-naked, and Tom Atkins is, like, kissing her chest and stuff. <laughs> I don't need it. But in the book, that first time where she's like, where do you want to sleep? And he's like, where do you want me to sleep? Which is kind of a charming little, like, polite move. In the book, she's like, legs open, taking her shirt off <laughs> while they're having that conversation, which feels... Like a, another way in which the the book is going like women, huh? Yeah, <laughs> they're either sluts or they're nags, and this one's a hot slut, so we like her. This this the, the, in the movie they fuck so much because that scene <laughs> happens where she goes, uh, you know, I'd rather you stayed here or whatever. And then the next day, he's off doing some sort of business related to the plot. It's like the next scene, and he comes back from that plot related thing, and she's waiting there. Going, I'm ready to fuck again. <laughs> I mean, they do the whole tour of the facility and then fuck again, right? Yep. 
Yep. That feels like wrong time, yeah. guys. Things have gotten too serious. Things are weird. Yeah. You shouldn't be doing that. Your dad died. <laughs> Yay, your dad died. Yeah. B, like you're in a town full of creepy security cameras and weird robot people. The the woman in the room right next to you got fucking murdered or something. And in the book, they look at her corpse like way more than they, they discover the body in a way that they don't in the movie. Yuck. Don't smash after that. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a family with a young child on the other side. I'm not saying you can't smash near a child or whatever, but like maybe it's just not the right moment, guys. Yeah. It's, Don't do it. it's weird that they're both in the mood after I could buy that one of them is <laughs> well, Atkins both. is probably just a current day cinephile he saw what happened to to Marge and he was like I'm just turned on by practical effects <laughs> <laughs> yeah I liked also he's known this he's known Ellie for like 12 hours and in the book he's after about that time period he's going Linda would never about like anything she does he's like <laughs> This is the complete opposite of Linda. It's like, yeah, for now, but like, you know. You don't know her. Yeah, I'm like, what, exactly. she's 25 yeah. and that's enough? I bet you like Linda when she was 25 yeah. too. Right, the book never makes that connection that once no. he probably thought as Linda of Linda as a hot young thing. It never yeah. does that. It goes, she was always a demon, but this woman <laughs> rules. I mean, there's literally a passage where the book says, he's watching the Silver Shamrock commercial. He's like, that witch is ugly and mean, just like Linda. <laughs> Looks a lot like Linda. What the fuck? I, I want I, I to jump into the, the, the women hating stuff more specifically. So yeah. I, on this podcast, I do a lot of reading passages, and I thought to break things up a little, I've earmarked a couple of our friend Josh LaRue's audiobook clips, and I oh, thought it would be okay. fun to play them. This is a passage where we get a little taste of Michael Myers is lurking in the shadows, and we also get a little taste of my wife is such a damn pill. As he drove past the steamed-up front, an elongated figure of impossible height seemed to emerge from the depths of the store, growing larger in a sickly green glow from behind the coin-fed machines. Chalice accelerated and left the area, his unease increasing as he made for 10th Avenue in his last remaining hope. Otherwise, he would have to throw himself on the mercy of Linda and the kids empty-handed. Kids, he thought. They don't forget. They're too young, and so they don't forgive. They're the only truly uncivilized beings left on Earth, a race apart, a primitive tribe and a law unto themselves, like Linda. She's allowed herself to regress to their level without bothering to reacquire any of their saving graces. Somewhere along the line, she became a beautiful woman, with the steel bar shoved up her ass all the way to her brain. She can't bend an inch. It might kill her. She could relax her sphincter muscles and let it go anytime she wants to, but she won't. It's her choice, and that's something I can't forgive her for. Unlike Bella and Willie, who are growing all the time. Unless she succeeds in shoving a rod up their asses, too. With her help, they'll grow straight, all right. They'll turn into pretty fascist, all intolerance and kangaroo court judgments and inhumanly rigid verdicts like machines. Okay, so Michael yeah. Myers is lurking in the shadows. It's just happening. Mm. He's just there. Then, uh, oh, that was creepy that there was a possible killer behind me. Uh, my kids are great. Except their mother sucks. Every, I like I read the book, but every time I go back to this passage, I am shocked at 
the brutality of it. She has a steel rod mm-hmm. shoved so far up her ass she can't bend over. If she has her way, the children will also have that rod in them. It's it's so it's so nasty. And it also has that thing about how she has regressed to the point of the child, but without any of the children's virtues. I couldn't nasty. I couldn't believe it. I I, I was flabbergasted. Also yeah. physically, if you have a rod <laughs> so far up your ass that it hits your brain. I actually don't think that just loosening the muscle would then get the rod out of there. <laughs> I think that's a more serious condition than he's letting on. He's a doctor. He should know. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's a weirdly a ableist doctor. doctor where he's going, people who have metal rods assisting their uh, their function <laughs> are evil. <laughs> But yeah, I think that that's a a great passage to highlight many problems with the book, which is tons of ideas, right? The the Michael Myers thing and the wife stuff is just thrown together, uh, not segged between very well, needlessly ugly, and, uh, and it just sort of goes nowhere, right? He just will think to himself, God, I fucking hate my wife. And then suddenly it'll go, plus those masks are so strange. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If any, yeah, it kind of undercuts. An everyday thought. Yeah. <laughs> he really is trying to get it in this guy's head. That's and and honestly, like, may, I, I'm sure I've seen seen Atkins and other stuff, but I feel like part of it. I, I mean, this is part of it. Is seems like it's you know some kind of you know entrenched misogyny that's not just trying to adapt the text. Part of it is is like so I think is someone looking at Tom Atkins. I mean, obviously they, these things are written before they see the movie sometimes. But looking at Tom Atkins and going, how do I reconcile this guy as a doctor and like a sort of amateur detective? <laughs> What's going on in his head? And I get why he landed on this, but it's not fun to read. It's awful. I mean, the scene, just to jump to the end, and you know, on the wife hating. The scene where he calls her and is like, please turn off the TV. The kids can't watch the commercial. Like, it's pretty desperate and not very nice in the movie. And in the book, he's like, you're a bitch. How dare you? (laughs) Like, he won't explain the situation in any sort of productive way. And immediately reverts to, you're a cunt, essentially. Yeah. And she's saying things like, you're just jealous because they love me more. Like, she's also being presented as like, and she won't listen. She has no interest in whatever he has to say, even though this is like life or death. She's cast in a horrible light. And Chalice is saying to her, like, you're the worst woman who's ever lived and i hope you die instead of our kids awful awful hateful stuff it's a major difference in interpretation between the movie and the book in my opinion of the character because the movie he's still an absent dad he's still a drunk he still has some animosity towards his wife but atkins is really emoting uh i'm a i'm a bumbler I'm sort of, uh, I'm sort of, uh, I was recently told that what I thought aloof meant is wrong, but whatever word means, he's just sort of clueless in a way that hurts others, right? Uh, feckless. He's it, sort of feckless. He's, he's the 1982 version. That's a great pull. Feckless, uh, fits like a glove. Uh, he's the 1982 version of a husband who's a, a League of Legends or Call of Duty <laughs> addict, where he, 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 he doesn't, nothing he does is super hateful. But the, the the fact that he won't take the headphones off and come away from the TV is hurting the entire family, right? You can see why she got kind of fed up and 
even if he's just a doctor who works too much, you can kind of see why they got. Oh, course. absolutely. He's the most. Do- he's he's so he seems so ready. He's so he's. He seems like he was born divorced. <laughs> He's such a divorced guy. <laughs> yes. But to me, that's Big a... Big divorced energy. The movie interpretation of this character is much more interesting because it's the type of person I've seen in life who also I don't find completely repugnant. Yeah. And in the book, he is completely repugnant. He's a guy where you're going, I, I bet she left you because you hit her, dude. You yeah. have so much hatred for this woman. The energy in their one scene together where she's like, you know, great, you get to swan in and give them gifts, and I'm the mom who has to say, like, we leave our food at the table, is so clear to me, is exactly what you were just saying, Andrew, that he's just, like, kind of a fuck-around kind of guy. He's not a he's not a good husband, he's not a very good dad, but it's not harmful, and it's not hateful, and they have some animosity. That's charming and nice. There's no reason to have it be anything more than that. <laughs> You don't have to do it. You don't have to spend the rest of the book every 20 pages going like, what a kind yeah. I straight up thought they were married watching it this time. I thought they were still married. Yeah, I just thought they were on the downside of a marriage. I thought that that was what was going on. Well, yeah, that's they, that. It has more of that vibe. It has more of a fresh divorce vibe in the in the mm-hmm. movie. In the book, it has. They've been divorced for years, and and he hates her more every day. <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking through my notes. I got a million things here. I just have a bunch of notes that say, like, this book is very anti-XY. <laughs> I don't really want to read a bunch of those. Like, they're really unpleasant. Uh, yeah, I mean, the I don't want to read a bunch of them either. The, the the wife stuff does come to a sort of a climax I find a little interesting. Um, oh, you know what? 24. I'm going to read something on 24. This is an example of the Atkins character in the book pontificating philosophically in a way that was at least interesting, right? Once again, as much as I'm going mm-hmm. in on Martin, I like his writing. He's he's at the store, I think, trying to find a mask for his kids, and he hears somebody telling a joke. Uh, it's like two, two blue-collar guys. And the, the one guy, classic, we only hear the punchline thing, right? The one guy <laughs> says, so she says, don't stop, lover boy. You're just like a goddamn machine. Either a punchline or a straight-up sex anecdote. Uh, and... Atkins thinks to himself, just like a goddamn machine. That's it, thought Chalice. That's what they want to be these days. As much like machines as they can possibly make themselves. For unfathomable reasons, some people delight in pretending to be as machine-like as the law will allow. It's an old story. It goes back to goose steppers and the whole military mystique. No, it goes back further than that. A lot further. People who act like machines. Machines that imitate people. Cute. Real cute. The height of chic. It's growing all around us. The Fourth Reich. Like smog and inflation. I wonder what it's really about. There's quite a few little, like, fascism sprinkles in the early part of the book that then he doesn't engage with later. This concept of, like, machines as people he should be engaging with more throughout the book. Yes. Not doing it. This passage is basically, it reads like Martin going, I wish I was writing Videodrome. Can I please talk about the relationship between humans and technology? I wish I could do that. Uh, and then he he once again is touching on, as you say with the, the Fourth Reich stuff, he's touching on this bit of characterization that maybe he heard from someone in, in production or one of the writers where he, he goes, oh, this guy was, you know, in Vietnam. This guy, this guy fought in the war. So can I... 
Can I use that? Can I make that a part of his psyche? And he, he plays with it enough in the beginning that I'm, I was really into it. I was going, what, how's this going to inform this character? And then like most things, he, he abandons all for plot eventually. But he's playing notes I find interesting in the first 80 pages. I wish it fucking paid off. Like Cochrane should be like, I'm a fascist and my goal is to take over the world <laughs> and enforce order or whatever. And uh, no, his goal is to murder a bunch of kids. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Why not give him, like you have the free reign in this novelization to kind of say whatever you want, as far as I can tell. Doesn't seem like he had a, a very tight leash on. Give Cochran something that makes sense with the, the, the sprinkles you've placed. Do something. Pay off, man. Set up payoff. Is Cochran's ultimate motivation the cabin in the woods motivation? Does he feel indebted to some sort of evil that had that that only comes out every once in a while, and so we plebs just don't know about it? He says something about like sacrifices to the old gods and three thousand years ago, but like he also talks about know. control, which which is which is not. I don't know. I mean, that seems like that's and like what. Did sacrificing children's 3,000 years ago put the Irish in control of the world? I don't think so. It didn't. What? That, that it didn't. Is? That it didn't. It was, it was a real shame. Oh, my God. Um, we haven't even talked about how the book at every turn leans into these Irish fuckers. Yes. It's calling. Yeah. It's saying they're so damn Irish and, and, and at every turn. And, then, and even suggesting that they are actively racist, right? I mean, at the end, where uh, they have Ellie in captivity during uh, this monologue, the villain's monologue, he goes, I could make her into a mask. She wouldn't be the right complexion. But hey, you know, it's it, it's another yeah. thing. I go, speak more on that, sir. I wish I was his therapist. Yeah. <laughs> what if everyone was red-haired, freckled Irish, it seems to which... I mean, I mean, similarly, there's a part where Chalice is like, I need a drink in this town. And someone says to him, like, it's an Irish town. There's got to be at least a couple of bars. <laughs> what kind of Irish town would it be if they weren't all drunk? <laughs> I love the idea, too, of this an, yeah, an Irish factory town or like, you know, like, that seems very, you know, it's uh, is that in California. Yeah, in, yeah, in California. Wait, it, Instead of, it's kind of the, the uh, inverse of the old Irish not do not apply, like old-timey, uh, you know, it, like 19th century stuff. That's Irish, just, please do apply. Only Irish only. No others welcome. <laughs> As a quick side note, Jesse, I don't know if you've encountered this in New York City, but like you go to an Irish pub and everyone who works there is Irish and you say like, how did you get a job here? And they say, oh, my uncle owns it and he got me over. <laughs> like they have done the immigration play. I always feel, I, that's interesting. That's, I, I, I always feel like the Irish pubs in New York are like, when they don't, when the, when an area of Manhattan doesn't have an ethnic identity. They're like, we'll put just some Irish pubs there, won't they? Like, it's not, it's all, it's like near Penn Station is the Irish pubs. And like, I feel like they, oh they just God, fill so in, they fill weird... in these weird little gaps where there's like, well, there's no culture here. So it's, and that's, Irish must, pubs. must be what happens in the, in this town in, in California. The, the Irish fill a vacuum in culture. <laughs> anyway, cut that all yeah. out, Andrew. But, no, it's, it's um, good. Just, I just wanted it's to It's good. I notes. love it. Um, the, the villain, I, I'm obsessed with the scene. I wrote on Letterboxd. That uh, this movie feels like this silly, you know, Twilight Zone riff where that sort of 
uh, good in an ironic way. It's fun to watch. And then during the scene where the villain monologues, it's like, is this movie actually good? What's going on? <laughs> why was it? Why wasn't this happening before? This seems good. And none of what he's saying has any substance or it's complete nonsense. It feels like something you would be handed in an acting class where they'd go, you have to absolutely deliver crushing news to your spouse, but you're only allowed to say blippity blop, right? That's basically what the guy's doing, and he's absolutely killing it. I'm fascinated by that performance. It is. I mean, I think the the movie, and to some extent the book too, but more so the movie, reaches... Yeah, I would say the movie reaches a fever pitch, you know, in, that, in its final stretch, and suffers a little for not reaching it sooner. But, I mean, how soon can you reach a fever pitch, I guess? Uh, the book often feels like it's kind of laboring to reach that pitch sooner. But it doesn't quite, you know, it, it, all it do, kind of does is undermine that the, the really wild goofball stuff at the end of it. Uh, because you're a little more in his head, there's a little more kind of ranting and raving and weirdness. And, like, you know, having him look at the, see the corpse, like, you know, a couple of times you, you kind of get a little more detail about some of these bodies and stuff like that. But it does, it's not, still not as successful as you want it to be, as I want it to be anyway, and as, as I want the movie to be when it's really firing in all cylinders towards the end, when it starts getting to be, and, you know, it's time for crazy robots, it's time for kids' heads to turn into bugs and stuff like that. Uh, it kind of makes you, yeah, it kind of makes you go, wait, where was this, where was this 45 minutes ago? Like, what was I doing before? Where was I? I was watching Tom Atkins have sex with some girl. <laughs> could he used more heads turning into bugs? At the bare minimum, could he used more robot hints? <laughs> I think the robot stuff kind of comes out of left yeah. field. And I think this book is better about yes, robot hints. Yes, definitely. He punches through a guy's chest, yeah. which I had forgotten happens in the film. And when it happened in the book, I... Could uh, it felt so insane. It felt so truly out of left field. It was not um, like, I, I don't want to say it wasn't earned because it's a really shocking, cool moment in the book. I think the robot twist in the book is really well done. I, I kind of agree that it's not set up in the movie, but in the book, we get the stuff that's in the movie like, hey, where'd the guy that burned himself in the car go? It's all car in here. I'm only seeing machine parts. And then we also get more emphasis on the pub thing where they're going, why aren't there any pubs in this town? Do people live in this town? Well, no, they don't. There's literally no people here. Oh my God, I love the part. Is this in the movie where Cochran's like, ah, oh, my robots have to go to bed at night. Yes. <laughs> the night's air is really corrosive yeah, yeah, to yeah, them. Yeah, it... So they have to behave like real I'm people. I'm pretty sure he says something to that effect in the movie. <laughs> That's amazing. That's fun. <laughs> it is. It's an I, amazing detail. I also like that. I if, again, I could be wrong about what we're supposed to think that uh, the doc, our, the good doctor knows, but at some point, at least in the book, Cochrane's like, "Of course, you figured out that everyone here is robots." <laughs> I was <laughs> like, so "Did he?" I don't know. We have the reader has, but I don't know if he has. I don't know if the guy he's talking <laughs> to has actually figured that out. Of course, There's, you've you've you figured it all out, Chalice. You figured out that. I'm a I'm a I'm a Satan worshiping mask maker who has an army of robots and we're using pieces of Stonehenge to make snakes <laughs> comes out come out of child's brains. And he's <laughs> he's either, he's too proud or too polite to be like, no, I didn't I didn't get any of that. Cochrane really <laughs> treats him as if he has as if Chalice is like his nemesis. He's like, this is just some fucking yeah. idiot who stumbled into town. You don't have to treat him this well. You don't have to explain the plan, yeah. man. 
You don't have to keep him alive. You don't have to do your villain monologue and keep him alive. You, uh, here's here's the thing that really bugs me. When some random guy you don't know thwarts your whole plan and makes Stonehenge kill you, you don't have to clap for him. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know him, really. And he does it by just dumping a bunch of your own computer chips onto you? <laughs> yep. Dude! Yep. All handled way better in the book, but we'll get to the climax eventually. There's a lot of flowery prose in this book that I really like. I'm going to jump to 53, 54. I'm not saying that this rumination is deep. I just think that it's interesting writing. A day in the life, like any other night, he thought. The oldest story in the world. The one where nothing fits together the way they told you it was supposed to way back when. If you eat your carrots and go to school and work hard and marry on the right side of the tracks. The only story since the beginning of time. But there's no use complaining about it. That's all there is. There ain't no more. Live it or live with it. Or check out and never wake up again. This is just like, he's just doing random. Does this have anything to do with the movie? No. But it's just Martin taking these random shots going, Maybe Chalice, the drunk doctor, is somewhat dissatisfied with his shambles of a life. And you could never get Jack Martin, based on the entirety of this book, you could never get him to admit that maybe Dan Chalice is a little bit in the wrong in his fucking marriage. But it comes out still. Martin, every once in a while, goes... Jan Chalice was actually deeply unhappy, and he wondered about it all. He never pointed the finger at himself, but alas. Um, I'll read a passage that I thought was well-written, if we're just going to do that for a second. Sure. Um, just, I, this is skipping ahead a little bit. Who cares? But when, they, when Ellie and Dan arrive at the town, I believe, on page 75, mm-hmm. No, sorry. They go to Ellie's store, Ellie's father's store, which is in a normal town not populated by robots, right? He felt nebulously guilty, a trespasser in a special place that by rights belonged only to the neighborhood. It was an isolated area, apparently peopled exclusively by the very old and the very young, where trees planted before the town had a name continued steadfastly to shade their own against the onslaught of time and city planners. On streets such as this one, it always seemed to be turning late in the year. Nice writing. Yeah, nice. nice evocative writing about a small town. Yes. Good job. Really nice. And and important, I feel like, without speaking directly of it, somehow I'm getting the autumnal vibes of a Halloween film. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could use a little... I mean, uh, every time a tree blows in the wind in Halloween 3, I feel good. <laughs> Russell, Russell, Russell. You know, it's good. I'm trying to think, Hannah, to just explain this to Jesse, what the actor version of us seeing Jack Martin write this book is. Because it's like when you see an actor who's an absolute Corvette, who's just an absolute killer, who you love. It's like when you see them Uh in a movie where they didn't try and they suck so bad. (laughs) (laughs) The, The talent comes through, but... Or not even the talent comes through, you just feel like... You know they're talented, but they phoned it in a little bit. It was just very strange to read this already being so in the bag with for Jack Martin. Uh, cool, I wasn't. Oh, you? I thought you loved Videodrome. I liked it fine. It's okay. It's good. It's better than many. All right. Well, I, I wasn't like, wow, I love this guy. I can't wait to read more of his. Is writing. there? Is there? <laughs> a, is he this? Is that the only other one of his you guys have done? 
That's the only one. He also yeah. wrote Halloween too. So someday. Someday. I mean, like, I'm happy for him or whatever. Like, it's good. It's well written. I, I, I was in a weird headspace this week where reading this on a computer screen was like pulling my hair out. It was so hard for me to read this. Not because it's bad. It's good. But I just like, I can't be that enthusiastic about Jack Martin. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really, really stand by that Videodrome novelization. That to me is a novelization with a vision. This was like going on a second date and realizing that all conversation <laughs> had been exhausted. You know, going on a second date and going, oh, is your mom still an architect? That sort of second date. <laughs> you know? how, how many siblings <laughs> do oh, you have? Oh, we used up all yeah. the conversation. <laughs> Oh, I, I don't have any more interesting anecdotes, actually. I've lived very reasonably. <laughs> I have a couple plot questions. Just straight up yeah. plot questions. Is Ellie always a robot? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think it makes sense for her to always be a robot. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's honestly that I would even pause to think about it. Probably says something about the plotting of the I, my i was just confused about like what the robot process the robotification process what that entails exactly mm. and yeah uh, because i'm not sure what the what's the advantage at this late stage of his plan in turning her into a robot does he I mean, he probably says it in his monologue and i forgot but i i just didn't understand why if you caught someone 15 minutes before you know, or whatever eight eight minutes before you're Thing is going to go off and kill all the children. Why are you like, well, but first, let's replicate this woman exactly in robot form. Just in case, I guess. And why make her mentally a baby? Right, right. It does actually kind of... Unless that's part of the robot process, (laughs) is that it takes them time to to mature. Which I believe is book-specific. The the making her into a literal child, just for the... Yeah, her saying daddy, I think, is in the book only. (laughs) Uh, Shudder, shudder. But it does kind of fit if he he mistakes the doctor for his equal and nemesis. It makes sense that he would say, oh, well, I need to undermine him at every turn. I must, you know, play this vast game of four-dimensional chess and turn his lady friend into a robot. Whereas if he knew he was just, Mm -hmm. like, a gutter drunk... He could like just shoot him in the head and throw him in the dumpster, and <laughs> you know, and Bob's your uncle, as he does with other right, gutter drugs. Right, it seems like a simpler. Solution. I mean, I guess I if if he if he is like ah, Dan Chalice is my nemesis. He might send a robot yes. to get him to the town so that they can kill him. I guess. How is he aware of Dan? Yeah, <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> The robot that kills Grimbridge is like, P.S. There's an interested party here. I don't know. Hey, I need to. I need to let you know that I met a doctor, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and there was whiskey on his breath, so he must have known what he was talking about. He seemed kind of interested in this guy in a way that might cause problems for us uh, tomorrow, the last day of our dangerous scheme. If Ellie is always a robot, which. It doesn't seem to be the consensus, but let's explore that. Then it seems to put Cochrane in danger. She leads him, Chalice, to Cochrane, who ultimately topples Cochrane, kills him, right? If Ellie is not originally a robot, which I also feel like is true, uh, then why end the movie where it ends? Because it feels like 
I, I don't agree with this assumption that that uh, Cochran has essentially robotified her. I feel like he has either created a duplicate her while she still breathes and she is still imprisoned, or he has killed her and released this duplicate, right? And if we assume that she was not a robot the whole time, then Dan Chalice is completely unaware of her fate at the end of the movie, and it's just never addressed, which also rubs me the wrong way. I think she's probably dead. I think it's safe to assume that she's dead. And also, 50 million children are dead, (laughs) so that's kind of the bigger concern. Sure, uh, worth saying now that the end of this book just confirms he did not stop the (laughs) ad. And it did kill... Tons and tons of children, whereas the movie, of course, plays with the ambiguity. And and the, the ambiguity thing I love because it's also this mission statement by the 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 Akkads and, the, and, and Tommy Lee Wallace and everybody saying, uh, this is an anthology. So not only did this not have to do with Michael Myers, but we will not resolve or revisit this plot. This is ending in an ambiguous way. See you in Halloween 4, you know, reason that we switch or whatever it's called doesn't sound spooky (laughs) i stopped improving a while ago but it it's it's it i love it because it's saying like not only was this disconnected but it's also over right to to continue this in any way would spoil the ambiguity and then jack martin just goes not this sucker lost (laughs) i mean i have never felt that there's ambiguity in really there. yeah i i never yeah I it never feels like that. a big loss to me he gets the first two and he's screaming and howling turn it off turn it off and they don't and he loses yeah. it feels like such a what's the alternative tragic, what else could have awful... happened they must oh. just didn't work oh i feel i feel like it's the top spinning at the end of inception i feel like the alternative is that it switches off the moment after the movie ends no it's already happening the first two channels, he starts to see, they're like, do, 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 do. It's time, kids. Yeah. And he gets the first two off. And the third one obviously doesn't. It's still playing. Feels. I feel like it goes a little more into detail in the book. And the, and the movie, the, what I recall, is it kind of feels like a fluke. Like, oh, yeah, two of them did it. And the other one just didn't. And this one, it's like, he's like, yeah. call ABC specifically. <laughs> specifically, ABC fucked it up for the world. I know, they really they really bla- put the blame squarely on ABC in this one. I don't think it's That's that really network specific in the, in the movie. I guess you want to keep your options open. I mean, what is he, he, is he calling each, is he calling like NBC, CBS by hand individually and then hanging up and calling the next one and doing the same bomb threat? I think so. I guess so, yeah. That's how it must. Be. I mean, it's amazing that he gets two. Yeah, yeah. Right, amazing that they don't just say like, "You're a crank. Shut yeah. up." It's Halloween. Yeah. I find it to be quite ambiguous. Um, yeah, no, I, I never found it. I, I don't find it <laughs> ambiguous as to what happens so much as the. It's it's kind of a different kind of ambiguity. It's sort of a you know. You don't know the specifics of what happens, you know, like you don't know for sure that his kids were watching TV or maybe maybe you do. But I don't, I don't remember correctly, but I don't think, you know, for sure. You don't know for sure. Uh, I don't think so. So you don't know which, you know, how many kids are have have had their faces mask melted and, and stopping some of the channels sort of mitigates it. Maybe. But like it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's ambiguous in that sense, but it's not ambiguous that some kids died with masks on their face and presumably turned to bugs and stuff at some point. The witches both win and lose. Yeah. 
right? Like they win, they kill a bunch of kids and they lose. They all get zapped to death. So it's called Season of the Witch because why? Cochrane is a witch. He's a witch. He's doing witch stuff. And it's the season for them to be witchy, I guess. Yeah, I think he's a witch. I think that's... There's a part where Chow says like, what are you doing here? Witchcraft? And Cochran says, like, well, if you put it, like, <laughs> you know, something This like just that. seems like such a Mad Libs, the plot where it's going, you know, masks and Stonehenge and all that stuff. And and, and I, I'm always puzzled by the fact that one of the random words filled in is not witches. I know they say witches, but it's very unclear how they factor into the story. No, it's very, str- I mean, it's a weird double. It's like you, they want to make absolutely sure that the audience going to this movie is disappointed in some way. <laughs> even if they know going into this that it's not michael myers well you're you could reasonably expect that it would involve a witch and it doesn't really it, it, like yeah like hannah like you said it involves witchcraft by per- perpetuated by an irish man but that doesn't really seem i like... mean i guess i have to give it credit for not, for saying like not all witches are women it's not just women that's right that's right, right. Good. Phew. Yeah. <laughs> Could have gotten really yeah. ugly in there. <laughs> Otherwise. Yeah. It would have marred its spotless record. Yeah. It's, it is, <laughs> it's like, that's also, I think, why, as much as it's cool how much this deviates from Halloween and Halloween 2, why it still can be unsatisfying, I think, even if you're open to that. Because it's not that, yeah. I mean, there's definitely some really fucked up horror stuff in this, but it really is just as much science fiction as it is horror. And I can see, so it's like really, it's going so far afield of what just even the the robot stuff has no place. No, in this. like I'm no, sorry. it really doesn't. The the witchcraft of we're using Stonehenge shards yeah. to do magic that melts children's heads into bugs, yes. kills their families, and that's good for us as witches. I'm into that. That's cool. The robot shit is just a layer. <laughs> it's too much business, yes. right? It's confusing. Okay, but Hannah, confusing. Hannah, hear me out. All that stuff you just said. Do the Stonehenges bring the robots to life? Stonehenge. <laughs> is that part well, of it? Well, I have no idea how the Stonehenge has the power to shoot brains, but Stonehenge is some <laughs> sort of ancient weapon. It just must be. Okay. Right. Hannah, I was going to yeah. say, you're putting down this mismatch of ideas, but what if I were to pitch the same thing to you, but also for the first half of the movie, Michael Myers is right around the corner all the time. <laughs> fine i again i like the idea of the looming boogeyman be it michael myers or something that does just scare children in the night like a mask that turns your brain into bugs that's fucking scary i i i I would like a movie that dovetails with the reality of michael myers and also there's other horrors in the world would it make me like it more no (laughs) but it would be cool yeah i really wish atkins given all of his beliefs in this book at some point at the end went, you idiot, men can't be witches. <laughs> that's gotta that's gotta contradict with his beliefs, right? It does feel like something he would. I mean, by the time he's like strapped to a chair with a mask over his head, it kind of feels like he's almost given up. He's like deeply uninterested <laughs> in whatever's being said to him. <laughs> he is not intellectually engaging with the villain monologue. I, I want to talk a little more about the film and book's relationship to the protagonist. And it, it's got me thinking, are the Halloween films, maybe mm. critical isn't the right word, are the Halloween films punishing sin in the same way many horror franchises do? So in the original Halloween, 
I feel that the movie has a very respectful view of its protagonist, right? The movie likes mm. the protagonist. Uh, it, it It's getting a lot of drama out of her being in danger, but it really puts the audience on her side, right, Laurie? The other horror franchises will engage in, oh, this character went off and had sex and now they must die, which I know does happen in Halloween a little bit. But I'm wondering, is is this protagonist, this Halloween 3 protagonist, is it the result of them going, mm-hmm. okay, we need something much different from Laurie. So how about old-ass divorced <laughs> drunk man, right? On paper, I'm very into that. Still engaging in this in this sort of very credulous faith in him, where they're going, but of course he's our protagonist and we love everything he does. Is that something that's already baked into the franchise? That we like him inherently because he's the protagonist? Yes. I, I do think there is a kind of unthinking acceptance of him that probably might subliminally, or I guess subconsciously is the right word there, uh, or the better word than subliminally, might subconsciously be a result of Jamie Lee Curtis connecting so well with audiences that, that they wanted to see, you know, they really like her, I think, in that role and and find her really likable or rootable, relatable, all the above. Uh, and, you know, she paid off for her. And, like, she was, you know, appeared in, like, three or four other big horror movies, maybe more, off of the back of that. And so it kind of feels like, oh, we, you know, that... Like, we were clearly on to something. She carried, you know, she was obviously someone who could carry a whole movie and, and could carry other horror movies, and people would like, like to see her. And maybe they, maybe there was a kind of, un, I don't think it was probably conscious saying, we're going to do the same thing for this middle aged, uh, <laughs> this middle aged guy. Uh, but I think there might have been an assumption that that would happen or that could happen or that they didn't need to think much about like, is this guy just like kind of a dick? I mean, I guess Atkins <laughs> also has like a, you know, he was a carpenter connection because he's in the fog and uh, mm. escape from New York. So there might've been a feeling that like, yeah, carpenter likes him. So like, that's, you know, does he have the juice? Yeah. He's got the juice. He's in the family. Uh, and I don't think he does. I mean, I guess some horror fans love him. I think he's like really cool in this. And I, to me, it all kind of, I don't know if this is, this might be juvenile, but like, I feel like Han Solo is a much more likable character than this, but I feel like the way that I am sort of like, huh? About people my age or a little older who really like Tom Atkins in this. I'm like, oh, you're like one of those Han Solo guys. Like, I guess if your baseline is like Han Solo is the coolest, (laughs) then Tom Atkins could also, also register as pretty cool but if you're like Han Solo is kind of cool which is where I'm at then then Tom Atkins does not hit the scale of, of cool yeah. he just seems mm. like an old dude I mean if you're me where you're like what makes Han Solo cool is that he's a dork and he sucks <laughs> right? he's a lame loser yeah. and that's what I like about him then Tom Atkins is no. not not that <laughs> not even a little bit yeah it's well or at least he's kind of I mean he's a loser in this but he's not it's not the same uh it's not the not same the, charm. yeah I mean, the scenes with the morgue lady or whatever her job is, um, where they're kind of flirty, but not seriously. Like, right, where she, th- those are scenes where I'm like, I can see the appeal of Tom Atkins. Like, I, he's, <laughs> he's nice. He's kind of playful. You know, she likes him and it's, it's easy breezy. And it's, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. All the scenes with Ellie are so predatory and disgusting <laughs> and weird. And it's not totally his fault, but he, as a performer, 
I'm not rooting for that. And I think there's a version of this, of an actor in a role that is this role where I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) You know, it's like cute and it's sexy and it's enticing. And maybe it's a little verboten because she's a kid kind. I mean, there's that very weird part where he's like, how old are you? And she's like, I'm old enough, daddy. (laughs) In the the book, he goes, does that mean 18? (laughs) And she goes, (laughs) 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 it's weird. And I think a different type of actor could play it with a little more charm and a little more likability and it would be fine. And Atkins is weird. He is. And he, well, he's like, and he, where he is most of the rest of his career after this is character actor. And it's fine character actor i think he works fine i and, and i think there's a weird kind of meta aspect even when you're reading the the novelization you're like oh this is something like the kind of mix of like oh this is sort of interesting glimpse at his psychology but also horrifying in the bad way where it's just sort of like this really he's really hammering home a few things it's it's we in a weird meta way it's like yeah th- there's a lot of characters in movies side characters character actor characters who, if you got a glimpse at their inner monologue, would probably be as weird and, you know, single-minded as this stuff is. Like, they're not, you're not supposed to be, like, you know, the the stoolie who you see for two scenes or whatever. You're not supposed to be, like, in their head for 200 pages. Like, it would would be so exhausting. I mean, obviously, you could make a a great novel about those types of characters. But, like, this is sort of has a different relationship because it's not a novel. It's a novelization. It's, like, taking something from a movie... It's just like it has, a, I think, has a different relationship than if you were writing this from scratch. And I think you'd probably weirdly get away with some of this stuff. Not all of the really nasty stuff, but some of it you could probably get away with more if you were writing it from scratch and not have the audience necessarily blanch as much. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's different having seen. Atkins is like really abrasive, yeah. I think. Yeah. Like, I don't find him to be soft or pathetic or likable in the way that I want. No, no. <laughs> this guy to be. And in the book, I sometimes I'm like, oh, oh, mm. I feel a little sad for him. Yeah. And that helps. Yeah. yeah, the book, weirdly, though, it makes him even less, arguably less likable, knowing some of the shit going on in his head. He's having like intrusive. Yes, thoughts. that's that's what the that's what the book really made me feel is that he's not a guy going, oh, I got to go see my wife. She's hard to deal with. He's a guy going. I got to go work at the office. Long day at the office today. I hate my fucking <laughs> wife. It's just it's crashing into yes. unrelated yes. thoughts. And that weirdly, and I wouldn't say that makes him more sympathetic because it really makes him pretty repulsive. But in some ways, it does make him more sympathetic than your garden variety lummox, you know, in that you do kind of I did sometimes feel bad for him because it does feel like. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is like, a, you know, he's an alcohol. He registers more as an alcoholic in the book. You know, this is this is a disease. This is a really he's really he's really a miserable person. Even if you're not necessarily that sympathetic towards him, there's maybe a kind of maybe you're not empathetic, but you are sympathetic or something, something like that. There's a kind of sadness to his character that I think and the book lays it on so thick that it, it, it ends up being its own problem. But there is something I don't know. There's both more depth to his character in the book, but also. I don't know, maybe you don't want to go that deep on this character because you don't like what you see. <laughs> I think maybe the best part of the book for me is, you know, we've we've extensively covered how he's a misogynist and we're being force-fed that over and over again. But on page 84 and 85, suddenly he sort of 
tips into having a conscience, being worried about the way his life is going. Uh, let me find what I'm talking about. He rolled up the window, leaned back, and closed his eyes. Suddenly, the beer didn't want to stay down. So he's driving drunk. I should see them, he thought. I know that. God, do I know it. I want to. But I'm no good to them, to myself, to anyone yet. There's some unfinished business to take care of first. Then, with luck, I'll know more. Enough to understand and pass along the warning to someone else. Like Bella and Willie. But until then, I got my own act to get together. Suddenly, he's having this thought of, maybe I do have problems, I'm not ready to be the father they need. And I know we can take that literally. We can take that as, I have to solve the Silver Shamrock potential massacre of children. But... It works on this other level where he's for once going, maybe I am not the father they precisely need. And then it's followed by this dream that he has, which is essentially a dream about how a bunch of children are being slaughtered and they're, they've put these masks on to, to try to pass, to try to, to try to get passed over as victims. And the killer in the dream seems to be Michael Myers, which... Mm -hmm. I can't make thematically work, but it's certainly interesting. He has these just back-to-back -back things. Maybe I'm a bad father. My children and all children are in danger. And it's it's the closest he ever comes to thinking a self-critical thought. He does have a lot of his own shit to get together. Unfair that men get to take the time to figure themselves out before they have to be dads. <laughs> I know it, it, you're living when you're living with the kids. This is just uh, this is just known as neglect. Being like, look. I know you're hungry, and it's time to eat dinner, and we forgot to eat lunch, but I've got my <laughs> own stuff that I'm taking care of, and when and, and when and only when I've resolved this within myself, I will get you a pizza. You know, like, it's, it's, <laughs> it is, it's definitely something that you can do when you don't actually have to face those responsibilities on any particular schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the slapdashery of the culmination of the story, right? It kind of feels like maybe it should circle back personally to his children. He's like, I have to save my children. I have to go to that house and rip them away from the television if that's what it takes. And he makes it or he doesn't, whatever. And the fact that the story at large is like, we're going to make it bigger. Bigger umbrella. Save every <laughs> kid. Save your own kids. Um it isn't as punchy. Like, I think Atkins sells the final moment of the movie. But, like, the book feels like kind of like a letdown. Where I'm like, this is what you're doing? You're making phone calls? <laughs> yeah. No, I think, you, it's, I think you're onto something. I think that it also, it might even make more sense if it's, and this is not to, I hate the fucking backseat screenwriting that I sometimes find myself doing. But, like. I'm, I'm yeah, guilty of that I, as well. I just did. <laughs> I do it in uh, New Fletch all the time. And then, and then uh, you know, uh, what's the thing? Flagellate. Uh, self-flagellate about it but it probably like it might make more sense if it was a more local you know thing where it's not gonna kill every kid in america essentially or, or whatever it is i don't know what the scope is. 50 million kids that's a lot of kids if it was just like his town and you know and then there is the kind of a feeling that he could go to the TV station, the one TV station and stop it specifically saving his kids or yeah as you say go to his ex's house and stop it just physically stop his kids from watching it even then you have an interesting dilemma do you save your kids do you try to save all kids you know when one is maybe more likely to work than the other etc cetera, etc cetera. but by making it this whole like world thing i mean it does it gives it like in the movie it gives it a great kind of like apocalyptic ending of like 
oh boy, mm. we're really sta- staring at the precipice. You know, it's got it's like a Planet of the Apes style ending, or like the like a lot of the Planet of the Apes movies ending with this like kind of uh, doing something very silly until it's like oh, but also a nuclear bomb has exploded and all life. On I've Earth I've is, I've, is I've gone. said this before on the podcast, Planet of the Apes, the series, the original Saw. Every movie <laughs> trying to one up the last twist. Yeah, I yeah. think you could go back and and edit in Hello Zep to the end of, <laughs> especially beneath the planet of yeah. the Apes. Oh, for sure, for sure. It's just a, an interesting movie about cultures clashing, and then at the end they go. And now our nuclear bomb will will blow up the earth. You could definitely get the dun dun. You could do it with uh, <laughs> with escape too. When when uh, you know after the the apes, get, I don't want to spoil all these Planet of the Apes movies. But. We can spoil movies from the <laughs> goddamn 1960s. Okay, <laughs> uh, in escape, we can and we should. Yeah, <laughs> escape. The poor apes get shot to death. That's a perfect time when, and then they like reveal that Caesar or what they switched the baby and the baby's still alive. The perfect, perfect Hello Zep moment. I mean, a perfect um, film series. The first yes. five, Jesus yes. Christ. Yeah, oh, Saw, yeah. we yeah. agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, if we're talking yeah. Saw, the first six are perfect. So excuse yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, you're right, you're right. <laughs> yeah, there, are there novels of the Apes series? There must be. That was like, yeah. right. Oh, seemed... all, the first one, of course, based on a novel, so it doesn't right, have a novelization, course, yeah, but yeah. all four sequels novelized will do them someday. Fantastic. Can't wait. Love those movies. Um, yeah, but I, 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 I think... You do in going for that apocalyptic ending, which is really cool and gives the movie some cachet. And I feel like I go back, I've gone back to it, even though I don't want to go back again. I have gone back to it, being like, "Well, yeah, this one really sticks the landing. Like it's a cool, creepy ending." It doesn't really land this character or his dilemma mm-hmm. or anything that's going on with him. It just lands a cool. Again, it's a cool anthology episode ending. It's not really a like a character arc for for our man Tom Atkins. And in the book where you're in his head the whole time, like, I want the character resolution. Right. That's exactly. what I need from a exactly. book. Exactly, yeah. Where I, I can gloss it a lot more in an action-packed thriller yeah. movie. <laughs> I totally agree with what you're saying. It doesn't it doesn't land anything thematically, in, and it, the movie almost forgets that he has a family. It's, it yeah. becomes just a, <laughs> yeah. a global thriller, right? There's so many things I want to say about the ending of the book. I'm sorry if you guys have loved ones. Uh, the <laughs> when they're all at the factory towards the end with the the salesman. What's the salesman's name? Cupfer. Cupfer. Yeah. yeah. Um. The the description of his family is so damn brutal. It says, observing these typecast all Americans haggling over the family budget, even here before trusting their sheltered lives into the hands of Rafferty and his deluxe motel. Chalice was amused and touched rather than offended. At least he, Buddy What's-His-Name, is holding them together somehow, thought Chalice, no matter what the price. He's a low-potential overachiever with high blood pressure and a tendency to ulcers. His wife's wife's hypoglycemic and undoubtedly a nag, and his kid is badly in need of of prescription for Ritalin. A workaholic prone to fits of depression, not above a shady deal now and then to keep them in double-knit polyester. And then he says, they're a a troop of overweight mouseketeers. (laughs) Yeah. And then they die brutally. Just mean. I mean, their their brutal death, incredible in the book. I I think Mm. probably my favorite single bit of prose. How'd you guys feel about that? It's nasty. 
I mean, it's sort of like the nastiest moment in the movie, too. It's shockingly horrific. Yeah. It's mm. something I will never forget. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I it didn't land... As, I mean, like it was certainly creepy and, and interestingly handled in the book, but it's hard to compete, having seen the movie first, with the images, because, like, mm-hmm. this... I mean, I feel like this book struggles with that. As much as uh, the writer really is pretty good at imagery... Uh, that's not in the movie. But when it comes to recreating stuff that's in the movie, it's like the movie does have, I think the one thing the movie has going for it has a lot of like crazy horror movie imagery that you remember, even though you don't much like the characters, the story doesn't make a ton of sense. And there are robots for some reason. There are like images that you really starting with those masks that are so for lack of a better word, have such iconography to them that, you know, I think, and like this. So yeah, the scene where that kid, (laughs) jeez. Where that kid, it's you know, so it's it's awful. it's really genuinely shocking and horrific in a way that not many horror movies. You make don't it to. kill kids. No, like, it just no. doesn't happen that often. And so the fact that not only do they kill a kid, but like his head smushes in and bugs and snakes come out, is so scary and awful. And cons- like cons- trying to imagine. What does that feel like? What's happening to him? What is he experiencing? So horrendous. And then to then understand, like, it's going to happen to 50 million children. <laughs> oh, I, I want to play the clip of, of, of Josh LaRue reading that for the listener. Okay. I only have this one and one more. So you guys, I won't do this a million times. But <laughs> uh, it, I am sort of fascinated by this plot point. Why is Silver Shamrock killing off its best salesman? I think they're just kind of like nasty, mean, right? Yeah. They just like they, they also after they kill fifty million children, Halloween is over. Yeah, <laughs> so no you don't have to ever sell year. Halloween masks again. Yeah. Mm. So oh, that's a good matter. point. That's a good point. It feels like they could have taken his orders, right? He yeah. keeps throughout the book and the movie going, "Why won't they take my orders for next year? If you're gonna kill the guy, kill his son, all that stuff, just go. Yeah, man, a I'm million masks next year. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man, we'll do it." Yeah. Silver they, Shamrock they is really, dissolving. They don't tomorrow. want the, ex, the paperwork. The extra paperwork is such a <laughs> headache on their end. You got to train a robot to do paperwork, Andrew. Yeah, That's hard and annoying. Yeah. Do you think that the day after this happens, that Cochran, you know, he's feeling really good, and then he checks his stock, and he's like, oh, <laughs> I really fucked up. <laughs> I thought this was supposed to give me wealth and power, and yeah. yet <laughs> the people of Ireland still suffer. <laughs> All right, let me... This is, of course, the, uh, the the death of Buddy and Little Buddy and all of that. Buddy's hands crept up to his mask. Little Buddy, said Betty. The stroboscopic effect speeded up until the room was blazing under a machine gun assault of orange phosphor. The shamrock button on the back of Little Buddy's mask became activated. It glowed red hot. The boy lurched back from the set, clutching the mask. A strangled moan came from beneath the mouth holes as he attempted to remove it. Little buddy! Betty stood up in shock as the boy pitched forward headfirst onto the carpet. Little buddy kicked and tried to raise himself. His pumpkin head melted. The orange rubber wrinkled and ran down like dissolving flesh, uncovering his eyes. They were two blood-red orbs. His parents were both on their feet, but it was too late. The mask hole, which was his mouth, tore open in a rictus. A wiry appendage poked forth, covered with bristles. 
It hooked to the carpets and pulled another appendage out after it, another and another. It was a spider the size of a black hand. Betty released a half scream, half whimper, and fell upon her son. The spider sprang to her face. She shrieked in horror as it stung her again and again. Buddy had to do something. He dove down onto his wife, covering her, but already she was twitching into paralysis. Then, out of little Buddy's throat, came the writhing extension of something long and impossibly thick, sheathed in slime, Gross. like a swollen, blackened tongue, a snake. As it forked the air and unveiled its dripping fangs, Buddy inserted his arms under his son in an attempt to turn him over, to lift him away. But the fangs sank deep into his leg, cutting through his trousers and burying their needle-sharp injection to the bone. I, I just find that very evocative of the film. And while none of us had this experience, I feel like if I read this without having seen the movie, it pretty much gets the feeling. And the language is just so damn disgusting. A thick thing coming out of his face, his 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 mouth becomes a red hole set into a rictus. It's it's gnarly. It's horrendous. It's all. It's so upsetting. It is the most upsetting thing in the film, in the story, conceptually. Period. Hands down, awful. Really, really awful. But could be an easy fumble as an author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well written. Definitely well written. It is uh, viscerally unpleasant. Do you guys like the part where Cochran disses Jesus? <laughs> I don't remember that. That made me howl. Let me let me pull it up. It's on 188. It says, uh, "Yes, his Cochran, the children. A plague is on them. Now think of that in 50 million homes. Sacrifices," said Chalice. His cheeks were burning and his body quaked. Strong black gloved hands restrained him. To what pagan god, Cochran? For what purpose? God? What a quaint word. I am speaking to you. Of our way, the one way, the old way, as it was done long before your unshorn carpenter from Galilee chose to destroy himself on that rude cross. Do you know anything about Halloween, Doctor? I just love that. Jesus is stupid. You like Jesus? I'm, I'm dealing with bigger things. What did there's you think? Part... Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Hannah. No, I was just going to say there's a part where this book uses the word um, syzygy. Yes. Syzygy. It's in, the, it's in the monologue that I keep praising, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. I, what? <laughs> Who? That's not a word. I mean, I looked it up. It is a word. But like, what a thing to drop into. <laughs> I made a specific note about it because I couldn't fathom somebody casually using that word. What were you going to ask, Andrew? I'm so sorry. Well, I, I was going to ask in general about your feelings about the ending. I, am I alone in feeling that the performance of Cochran in that one scene is just transcendently good? It's really good. He's really good. It's. I feel like that's when the movie's kind of like cooking. You're like, oh, yeah, this is, like you said, in your letterbox. Like, it feels like yeah. it's kind of going to another. Gas. Yeah, it's going to a little bit of another level there. And probably that, I feel like you can take, you know, you could probably scrape about 20, 25 minutes total from that movie and say that's why it has a huge cult following now is is like you know not before the whole thing because like there's long stretches of it that are kind of dull or kind of aimless but the really good stuff is is enough to win it a cult following 
once the child's brain has turned into bugs to the yeah. end of the movie is all yeah. gangbusters. It's yeah. absolute crushing. Yeah. And a lot of that is Cochran being like, I'm a fun villain. I love villainy. I'm having a good <laughs> time. Like he's very joyous with his villainy. And that's a fun element to bring to anything. Uh, one major change that I, I should highlight is that when he's tied up at the end of this movie, uh, mm-hmm. he of course gets out by breaking the TV and using that the shards as a knife or whatever. But in the book, they incorporate the fact that he's wearing the mask that's supposed to shoot his brains out, and he uses the chip as a weapon to break the TV because he's in in this book he's way ahead of the the chips are essentially you know laser blasters things he's figured it out far before Marge dies, and then when she dies he's going that's of course a misfiring no, laser blaster. Come on. Chip. <laughs> no, he kind of the the, no. the what I mean by that what I mean by that is that when she presents him the chip and she goes this is weird right i found this it's on the back of the the label he goes wow that looks incredibly dangerous you should definitely not play around with that don't do anything with that good night whereas in the movie he's he's more along the lines of weird see ya <laughs> fair enough uh, and it's like an electro she's like it's an electronic microchip don't you think and he's like well that seems like something you shouldn't play around with <laughs> like she's ahead of it and then it melts her brain he uses it to to break the TV, which uh, is just fun because it's it's sort of continuing the thread of the chips, which he'll then, of course, use to kill Cochrane and his robots. Jesse, would you like to highlight for our listeners the difference in Cochrane's death here <laughs> from the movie? I wish I could. I <laughs> I don't remember. Like this is the one disadvantage. Not I watched the movie about a year ago. Was the last time? Was my third? Oh no worries. Last time. Uh, what I so I'm curious. What is I was wondering that while I was reading today. What's what is the big difference? We get a monologue from Cochran here. I'll play my final clip. Clip. Hold on. Let me let me get there. Four ten thirty five. He selected the painted skull and pulled it over Chalice's head like a hood. Tell me one thing first, said Chalice. Why the children? Oh, do I need a reason? Oh, I can tell you that they are the easiest prey, and they are, you know. Uh, People nowadays no longer listen to them. They provide the easiest entry. The path of least resistance, as it were. What better reason from a purely pragmatic view? But they are such irritating little creatures, don't you agree? You know that you do, deep down, Chalice. They are as noisy as wretched sheep and twice as dirty. Given to us from out of the filthiest part of a woman. And you know what happens to dirty little lambs, don't you, Doctor? They are invariably given over to the slaughter. All right, I seem to have the wrong time code, but I'll make it right in the episode. (laughs) Essentially, what happens is that uh, he, Cochran, gives a a monologue about how he he absolutely hates children. And uh, that's part of the reason that he's doing all this. He's like, children are so damn annoying. But then he also, unlike the movie, he has completely infantilized Ellie, which does not happen in... Yeah, he's turned her into a baby-brained adult woman. And he gives her, or he gives a speech about how she's mentally six years old, and being six years old is the perfect age for a victim, and he loves killing kids and whatnot, and she starts calling him daddy. It's very fucking strange. But then, 
in the book, he is foisted on his own petard because she stands up on the rafters, meaning to, I guess, help him or something. And she's going, Daddy, look, the birds, the birds. It's totally nonsensical. It reflects back on that little detail she gave earlier in the book where her father gave her a bird and she felt so sad that it was caged that she set it free. Damn, I forgot And then her father hit her. (laughs) Maybe it's good that Grimbridge died horribly. Maybe. But that's, she has reverted to that era of childhood. And so- uh, It's not out of nothing. Essentially, because she thinks that she's doing this loving thing for her father or whatever, she drops all these chips on Cochrane and that's what kills him. So it's Mm -hmm. not really Chalice's idea in the book. And uh, essentially, whatever Cochrane has done to her has backfired because he's intentionally done a thing to her and then she kills him in a misunderstanding. Hannah, how did you feel? I just thought it was very bizarre. I mean, I guess I like that Ellie is involved in it. She has some activity to play in the downfall of the villains. But also she's a robot by this point, so it doesn't make any sense why she would do any of this. Yep. <laughs> um, yep I don't yep, know. Yep, 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 yep. By this point in the story, movie or book, I'm just like, let's get it. Let's get there. <laughs> so I don't know what's happening. I don't totally get why throwing a bunch of little chips onto the Stonehenge make it explode slash electrocute everybody. Like I just I'm just like along for the ride. I have no thoughts about it. I'm afraid to say. I don't like that he turns Ellie into a baby. I think that's gross and weird. And I think it's gross and weird then that Chalice is like, now I have to protect this baby woman who will come back to being a sexy adult woman any minute now and then we'll bang some more when I solve the problem. Like it's it's just weird and gross in every single way. And I'm glad it's not in the film. Like, she's pretty mute. Like, she's, like, in shock or whatever through in the movie. But mm-hmm. she's not a weird baby child, mm-hmm. which is gross. Yeah, the movie rides the... But the movie is also... I mean, I guess they... You're supposed, it's still a surprise in the book that she's supposed to be a robot. But it's... More, I guess it's in the book it's more confusing. Because, like you said... Why would she have memories in particular of her father if they've just made a robot duplicate of her? So is this a version of her that's robot with her brain? And if so, why? Then why would you make that thing six years old? Like, and it's much better when she has no dialogue. Yeah, you're like, I guess she's in shock, and then she's like, I'm a killer robot. Yeah, which is silly in its own way because, as you as you say, there's like no real reason for robots to be involved at all. But it makes more nominal sense than what they have in the book. Which I, I like really the idea that confusing. Cochran just couldn't find people who wanted to do this job. And he went, I guess I just <laughs> got to make Cylons. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I assumed that he's like, I don't trust people, so I have to use robots. Which is, yeah. They're, and they're cheaper. You don't have to pay them. Hannah Blackman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, buddy. You are Michael Myers. You, of course, survived... The hospital fire at the end of Halloween yeah. 2. You don't have any goddamn eyes. They were shot out of your head. <laughs> they were. You just kind of wandered Lucky out of the me. hospital fire. Because this is uh, Halloween 3 is a different canon than Halloween 4. And uh-huh. uh, you're wandering around trying to find victims. But it's tough because you're fucking blind. And you follow around for a while this guy, Dr. Dan Chalice. Yeah. But... You're not really feeling it, right? You follow him to a store. You follow him to his ex-wife's house. He's not a sexy teen. (laughs) Yeah. Not as fun for me. 
I'm kind of into mostly killing sexy teen. Totally. He's a little old for you. You're, you're, it, truth be told, you, Michael Myers, are a bit of a, a Dan Chalice yourself in, as far as your taste in uh, victims go. <laughs> Young women. You, you would love to go after an Ellie type. Yeah. The odd boyfriend, if I must. <laughs> a dog, if I'm hungry. You're not really feeling this thing with Dr. Dan Chalice. Yeah. So you let him go off on a completely unrelated adventure. And mm. in order to get back in touch with your love of reading... You put on the audiobook. Once again, no eyes. No eyes. So lucky for me, there's an audiobook. It's an audiobook, by the way, an audiobook uh, read by our friend uh, Josh LaRue, uh, his YouTube mm-hmm. channel, the uh, the Slash Tracks yeah, news God channel. Yeah, bless him, the work he's doing. Uh, uh, for those who don't know, and, and for those who didn't hear the episode that Josh was on way back, uh, a YouTube channel that uploads audiobooks he has made where he has purchased very rare novelizations and read them so that others might enjoy them so really doing god's work anyway you michael myers put on josh larue's audiobook do you think you would enjoy halloween 3 season of the witch by jack martin knowing what you know um yeah sure i guess so if i'm michael myers i think i'd be into this I liked it fine. It is well-written, as we say. It has some really nice prose in it, some really interesting philosophical passages, and just little lines here and there where I was like, ooh, good one. There was like a fun little part where somebody says to Chalice, like, wouldn't it be nice to be on the winning team? And I'm like, if the winning team involves killing millions of children? Fun little (laughs) nugget. Um, So there's lots to enjoy in this book if you are in any way interested in the season of the witch and have some tolerance for hard misogyny. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Pro Halloween 3 season of The Witch by Jack Martin would recommend with a couple, you know, little tags, little flags punched in there. Jesse Hassinger, you are watching a cut of Star Wars Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, edited by Jack Martin. <laughs> As Luke Skywalker walks into the room where he is going to encounter Darth Vader. A title comes up on screen that says epilogue. (laughs) (laughs) You, knowing what this word means, stand up and leave the theater for you've surely seen all the plot-related events. (laughs) You have a little extra time to fill because the (laughs) runtime of the movie allegedly was 20 minutes longer but didn't prove to be true. That's got to be tr- credits. <laughs> That's got to be 20 minutes of credits. You pick up a copy of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch by Jack Martin. Do you think you'd have a good 20 minutes knowing what you know? <laughs> um, I mean, not knowing that I was missing part of Empire Strikes Back, I'd probably be pretty okay with it. Um, yeah, especially because that 20 minutes is about is more than enough time to get past the part where you're reading the book thinking, oh, it's Michael Myers in this. Um, <laughs> but generally, yeah, I, like, I think this book is sort of, it's very, it, it does accurately recreate the experience of watching the movie, but with different kind of emphases, I suppose, uh, in that it is not altogether satisfying, more satisfying perhaps for... It's what it's able to provide that the movie can't the same way that the movie is sort of satisfying more for what it's not doing as a Halloween sequel than it is on its own as its own story. Um, Whether I'd recommend it, 
uh, I would, you know, I would think Halloween fans would should should check it out because of the like extra dimension you get on uh, on the lead character. Whether or not you will enjoy that dimension is questionable. But <laughs> I guess you'll appreciate it being there. Uh, same way, you know, I feel like if you're if you're enough of into the Halloween novelty that you enjoy Halloween three, the movie, then the the, the book has some more thing more novelty where that came from. I would probably still recommend it over anything to do with Halloween's four, five, six, <laughs> seven, and eight. Andrew Overby. Yes. You are Dan Chalice. Oh. You have failed to get the Silver Shamrock, whatever, off the air in time. And I think so it's ambiguous many... whether I failed. So, but... Well, I'm telling you, you failed Fuck. in this situation. And not 50 million kids, but a lot of kids died. And the police are a little bit curious about how you knew that was going to happen. So they drag you into the station and start to question you. And it's a really long, arduous process because there's a lot to explain. Eventually, they say, okay, mister, if you want to tell us a bunch of hokum pokum, you can sit in this interrogation room until you're ready to tell us the truth. Mm. So we're going to leave you in here with a copy of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch by Jack Martin. And you can think about what you want to tell us. Okay. See, you read the book. Do you like it? Do you recommend it back to the cops as a good explanation as to what happened? Yeah, I like the book. Uh, This book is doing enough. This guy writes real well. He's got some (laughs) great descriptions. There's this one description of the Stonehenge at the end, which the slab, which I loved, which Mm -hmm. is... uh, at first, the only thing he saw was the slab, towering in the work lights like a grandiose tombstone in full moonlight. The color of it was that of a human face in the terminal seconds of oxygen deprivation. To see that moribund color on such a sheer mass of surface area made his throat knot up. This is nice. Mm. No reason to do that. I don't need to know that the slab seems like a face, but... Good writing. It's just good writing. Jack Martin, he can do it. Uh, I did not like what I learned about him as an author <laughs> this time around. Uh, I was thinking when Jesse was saying what he liked about the book and what he didn't like, you could certainly put on the cover of this book, you'll get to know Dan Chalice a whole heck of a lot more. <laughs> it is a novelization offering depth. It's just you're really going into the depths of the man, the, the, <laughs> the ugly. You know, you're, you're really getting to see it. Um, Chalice himself in the book cracks me up. Uh, something I feel like I haven't talked about a lot. And and he he's so uh, profane at certain points. Uh, towards the end, he's thinking about the chips. And he's like, these goddamn stupid, shitty chips. I hate them. And then <laughs> at one point when he's about to beat Cochran, he says something like, uh, 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 goddamn you, Cochran, you're such a stupid shit. Just really <laughs> weird read on this character that did make me laugh, did make me cringe, did make me hate him, but I don't know. It was a fun ride. Jesse Hassinger, what do you do? Oh, oh. before I have before Jesse, I have one more comment to okay. make about the film. Halloween three season of the witch. Yeah. When I hit play on Peacock and that first sound happened, which I had not revisited this movie since I started listening to the new Flash. It took me the fuck out. <laughs> is it like, is that, so I don't always listen to the actual episodes. Is that from, <laughs> sure. But that like, that, like, bleep, 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 like oh, I yeah. can't make it with my mouth. Yeah. But it's a sound that I guess I thought was from Videodrome. Yeah. I think and I then, thought that too, actually. 
it's at the beginning of Halloween three, and I yeah. thought of you. Oh, <laughs> I Brett, thought that but, there yeah. is, yeah. I mean, and it's and it would especially Brent because he's the one who actually does the music stuff. I feel like there's a couple <laughs> different versions of our theme music. Mm. I think they were. I think they had someone had cooked up a saw version. I don't know if we actually used it. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, like the, if you guys we, ever want to run the gamut on saw again, you give yeah. me a call. Okay? Oh, yeah, <laughs> we're ready. Yeah. We're here. You're, <laughs> First on the I'm speed dial now, for, so. for, uh, for Saw 11, which I assume has to be coming <laughs> soon. Um, the It's funny because the new Flash thing I associate with with music that changed my brain is that like, the classic Halloween theme now, uh, because Brett did this, I now, every time I hear it, I think, Cunningham, Cunningham, Corey, Cunningham. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a movie that truly understood, what if we killed a kid? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What if we killed a kid and used that same font? That's what. That's uh, the Halloween three juice, <laughs> yeah. baby. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. God, Corey, I love him. I, I wish he was in this movie. I, oh yeah, for sure. He would make things right. <laughs> he, yeah. he would. He would save the children to make up for the one kid that he accidentally killed. Um, I have some good news, bad news, I guess. Uh, I decided to look up what the what the ratings were for ABC on Halloween night, 1982. <gasps> oh, okay. No. So I, it's, the numbers are turned out hard to, sometimes hard to translate in terms of ratings versus viewers. But you, I think you could safely say approximately 20 million people were tuning into ABC. Ooh. But you got to figure not all of them were kids wearing the mask. So maybe you were looking at like, because you're talking about like, 50 maybe not 50 million kids but a lot of kids i think we could say like maybe it's only like eight or nine million kids yo these days these days you could never commit this kind of hate crime against kids because if i did this mask shit it would just end up killing 40 million of those fucking disney adults (laughs) (laughs) well you'd have to get it you'd have to get a youtube channel that would be like a run a playthrough of a pokemon game or something Uh, that's fucking morons obviously the way to kill kids is to put something on tiktok yeah yeah oh yeah that's true yeah yeah congratulations silver shamrock 2023 congratulations (laughs) congratulations you killed kids yeah (laughs) jesse it was a pleasure as always having you on this episode thank you for having me it's always so much fun to talk about movies and stuff with you guys i want to say for our listeners that i personally think our halloween 4 episode is maybe our best episode like, it's it's so, a good episode about a, a horrid it book. It's so <laughs> a despicable book. It's an energetic episode about what a torrid, torrid, <laughs> horrible piece of trash that novel is. It's the I hate that I still have it on my shelf. I do. I do. I was just thinking. I, I still, just burned it. I have. A, I have a copy of it that I've been trying to figure out what the hell to do with it. Well, you know, it, it, uh, past and future guest Gus Spellman uh, had not yet been on the podcast at the time. And he, he listened to that episode and he said, that episode was so funny. I want to read the book. And I, I was like, <laughs> I'm glad to get rid of this. Never <laughs> show it to me dog. again. Perfect. Perfect. I think as we get into fireplace season, I'll just start using it as kindling. Like I don't want it near me anymore. And it shouldn't exist. In to, the world. To, to listeners who have not heard that episode, just consider everything we've said in this episode about, the character of Dan Chalice, the writing of Jack Martin, and realize that we find Nicholas Grabowski's Halloween 4 much more disgusting. Like Halloween 3, readable, interesting, verging on enjoyable, even in its misogyny. Halloween 4, despicable, shitty writing, 
and it hates women so fucking much. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Garbage. Jesse, thank you. Of course. Jesse, what the fuck is our house? <laughs> coming on too hot. We're getting a little getting too late. loopy late at night. Okay. Jesse, my friend, what perchance do you do? Where do you do it? And why? <laughs> Why is such a good question um, that I will not be answering. But what I do mostly is write, <laughs> write about movies. Um, and you can find me doing that at a lot of different places. Uh, Pace Magazine is where I write and edit some stuff uh, with my wonderful actual editor, Jacob Aller. Um, you could also find me at Inside Hook. Uh, I recently ranked all the movies. I didn't. I did this with some other fellas. We ranked the movies of Martin Scorsese, or actually everything of Martin Scorsese. His movies. Oh, and TV I love the Godfather projects. Yeah, yeah. Shark. It's got it all. Shark Tale. Godfather. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the Rolling Stones movie he didn't direct. Um, yeah, it's like it's like sixty Martin Scorsese things ranked and written about extensively. Um, it's mostly the writing, not the ranking for us. Um, other places, sometimes Polygon. I don't remember. It's late. I don't remember the other places I write. But you can find me on, I guess, on Twitter, if, if you must, uh, at Rock Marooned. Uh, or you can listen to the New Flesh podcast and hear me and Brett talk about horror movie new releases and sometimes classic movies. I'm all over the place. I'm hard to avoid once you start, <laughs> start <laughs> once you start noticing it. Then you'll have to install some kind of blocker on your browser. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you can just find me on the internet and stuff. Thank you guys so much. Of Such course, this was Thank wonderful. You. To our listeners, please do remember to rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it, visit our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash authorized pod. Also, if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes in which you write a paragraph novelizing a scene from your favorite movie, we'll try to guess what movie that is on the air. And as usual, I'm going to close out the episode by reading a passage from a classic piece of literature Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you think that you recognize what this is from. Hey, did you hear what happened last night? No. What happened last night? Oh, 40 million children were killed by the Silver Shamrock commercial. (laughs) Despite the efforts of The Running Man. Good night. Okay, so Silver Shamrock is fun as hell. So today's game is What fictional company did this person work for? Amazing. Amazing. The way this will work is you will buzz in with your first name, be that Jesse or Hannah, and let me know based on a photograph what this person is from, you know, what property they're from, and then also what fictional company did they work for that's two separate points. Here we go. Up first. What fictional company did they work for? Oh, uh, Hannah. Hannah Blackman. This is um, Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, who is employed technically, I guess, by the Patty's Pub. D- employed in all ways, right? 
I guess like, I guess I don't understand how you make a living doing the type of business they're doing. But yeah. Up next, what fictional company did this person work for? Who is this Rax man? <laughs> oh, you guys don't know. Okay. I don't know. It's, uh, Jesse, do you I know? Geez, I, I feel like it's someone from Blade Runner. What if I told you it was a person who had the same sort of death as Ellie's father in Halloween 3? Eyes pushed in. Ooh, that's cool, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't now know. I know less. Jesse, you get the point for Blade Runner. This is, of okay, course, okay. the CEO, I believe his name is Tyrell, of Tyrell uh, Corporation. Right. All right, oh. yeah. Up next, what fictional company does this character work for? Who is this wax man? <laughs> <laughs> this would have been so satisfying if you guys knew these two. <laughs> this That last one is... The, the CEO of Tyrell Corporation from Blade Runner. This is, of course, a character from Mr. Robot. And Mr. Robot's idea of cleverness was that it would just name characters after movie things they liked. <laughs> so this is a character named Tyrell oh. from Mr. Robot, which you would have loved if you knew that. But what company does he work for? <laughs> would you believe that he works for Evil Corporation? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have to believe it. Up next, what fictional company did this character work for, or does? That's Lenny. Sorry, Jesse. That's Jesse Lenny. Passenger. Lenny. Lenny. Len- Lenny Leonard, I believe, is his full name in some per some later season, and he later season of what? Of the Simpsons, right? Of course, uh, <laughs> a program I was known to enjoy for a lot of years, and. Uh, it's the Springfield nuclear power plant, unless this is one of those other ones where, like, he and Carl and Homer get some other job at some <laughs> other thing. This is, of course, Lenny Leonard from The Simpsons, and he works at the Springfield nuclear power plant. Nicely done. Incredible. Up next, what fictional company does this character work for? This is Hannah. Hannah um, Blackman. This is the guy, Silicon Valley guys. I've never seen the show, so I don't know what they work for. <laughs> I have seen the show and I still don't remember what they what the company is. It's been a long time. This is why I included this one because no matter how many episodes of Silicon Valley you watch, it is impossible to remember the name of the company. <laughs> they say it one million times, but you can't keep it in your brain. It is Pied Piper. Pied Piper, yes. Oh, that's a realistic name for an app. What do you guys think "pied" means as a word, as a as a vocabulary word? I guess I've never heard it out of this context. It shows up in some of my test prep uh, packets that I tutor with, and uh-huh. I've never encountered a single person, including myself, who knew it prior to me teaching it. The word pied means multicolored. Oh. Okay. Who the fuck I like knew? that, actually. It's <laughs> not, to me, like um, an intrinsic part of the Pied Piper situation. So that's interesting. Yeah, apparently he had a Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor coat thing going on. (laughs) They didn't care about his piping at all. They were they were all the coat that they were. (laughs) And he's he's sort of a villainous figure. So I love the idea that as far as his mythology goes, they're saying, "Oh, he's a terrible guy. He took all our children." But the guy had style. You might have hired a different piper. But that guy was boring, and this guy had a cool coat, so we hired him, and then he took our kids, and we refused to pay him. (laughs) Pied Piper, probably a guy that would like Silver Shamrock. (laughs) (laughs) Up next, what fictional company did this character work for? 
That's right, guys. I made the game hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is very familiar to me, and yet. Which actress are we looking at? Is that Helena, Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter? Carter? It's, of course, Helena Bonham Carter uh, playing uh, some sort of AI amalgamation. And what film did she do oh. that? All right, no one has this, and that's fine. No. This is, of course, Helena Bonham Carter, who was playing someone who worked at Cyberdyne, but then after that character dies, she becomes the AI embodiment of Skynet. Which one is this? Terminator Salvation. Genesis? Okay, that makes more sense. I guess I can forgive us. <laughs> and I like Salvation, historically. A film that does have a novelization. <laughs> And we will. Can't wait to rewatch that movie and go, oh no, it's bad. <laughs> the idea that you ever watched it and didn't have that thought. Saw it in a movie theater, liked it a lot. Thought it was interesting and good. <laughs> All right, up next, what fictional company did this character work for? I know what this is. But, oh, it's, uh, it's uh, sorry, Jesse, uh, is this. Wayland? It's, it's Prometheus. It's the guy from Wayland Utani, right? Ooh, yeah. Or maybe he's just he's one of the guys from Wayland Utani. Is it Utani or Wayland? <laughs> Jesse, you have fallen for my trick. This is, of course, from oh, no. Prometheus, which means you get that point, but this is before the merger. So it is just oh, Wayland okay. Corporation. Just Wayland. I'm going to give it to him because honestly, he got it, it was there. It was All sad. Right. All right, I just want it to be known that it was a trick I planned and you walked right into my snare. Yeah, well. Up next, I don't actually know if this is correct because I've never seen the movie. <laughs> what fictional company does this character work for? Mm. Oh, Jesse, it's uh, Wally works for By and Large. Do you at least have to watch the first half of Wally? You have to, no, no, watch, you all watch of the Wally. whole thing. I mean, the whole There's, thing you is can't, beautiful. You're inviting him to just turn it off. I'm not invite. I'm just saying, like, if he thinks he doesn't like it, which would be insane, like, you just have to stick through the, I see, the I see. like, Earth sequence. Yeah, yeah. Up next, what fictional company does this character work for? Hannah. Hannah Blackman. It is. Now I'm really doubting myself, but I think this is also Wayland Corporation, but from Alien vs. Predator. Yeah, it is. I'm pretty sure you're right. This is, of course, Charles Wayland, who is the (laughs) father of Peter Wayland from Prometheus. And because fathers predate sons, this is also pre-merger, and it is the Wayland Corporation. I thought I was being tricked, but... Good picture, Aliens vs. Predator. Yeah. Oh, I thought you just meant the picture I chose. I was like, it's fine. <laughs> that's, also, that's also a good picture. But it yeah. worked. Doesn't give away too much, but I knew. He's the best part of the movie, I think, Henriksen. He gives yeah. a, a terrific performance in this film. It's good. Up next, what fictional company does this character work for? Hannah. Hannah Black. <laughs> this is, of course, ill, sick boy Norman Osborne, <laughs> Harry Osborne, Harry Osborne, in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Uh, where he works for the Oscorp. This is, of course, Dane DeHaan as <laughs> something Osborne. I don't know these movies that well. Harry. Harry. Yeah, I think he's Harry. Harry Osborne. Yeah, he's Harry. And he works yeah. for Oscorp. Who's um who's playing his father in these films? Not present, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think they show him ever, actually. You're right. Wow. Up next, what fictional company does this character work for? 
Oh, ooh, uh, Hannah. I don't Hannah have Blackman. the name of the company, but this is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where they work for the Sun the Sunshine Spotless Mind Company. <laughs> this is, of course, Kirsten Dunst and Mark Ruffalo dancing on the bed in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and it's not possible to remember this name. It is, of course, <laughs> Lacuna. Mm. Oh, I look at Ruffalo. So tiny. So tiny. They both could eat a sandwich, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Up next, what fictional company does this character work for? Hannah. Hannah Blackman. Oh my god, this is Marion Cotillard in Assassin's Creed, and that company has a name that I remember, <laughs> and I'm going to get it in any second now, because it is memorable, and mm-hmm. we talked about it for like three hours. Uh-huh, uh-huh. A uh, terrific episode with uh, Fran Hoffner for our listeners. Really good. Fun book. All right. This is, of course, Marion Cotillard. Hannah shaking her head. Uh, from Assassin's Creed and the company she works for, So Evil, So Bad, is Abstergo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I forgive myself. I could never. Uh, I would never remember. No. I had a feeling that we were going to we were gonna bloviate on that for a while, and then you were going to say Knights Templar. which is sort of i knew it wasn't that technically Mm. up next what fictional company does this character work for hannah hannah blackman the good gentleman of mad men and i guess in this era it is sterling cooper draper price which of uh which of the men are we looking at hannah we're looking at don we're looking oh that's like that's i didn't even and Pete, right and in the Pete. middle, is that Pete? That's like old, late period Pete. This is late Mad Men. This is late Mad Men. Of course, Ted Shaw rocking quite the mustache. I love Ted Shaw. One of my favorite characters on Mad Men. Little Ted Shaw sidebar. Ted Shaw gets uh, sort of introduced as a main character in season six, but he's lingering in previous seasons. When he comes in in season six, he's a deeply troubled, brooding man. If you rewatch Mad Men, he's the guy in season four that calls up John Hamm and goes, I'm John F. Kennedy. And, and they cut to him and he's like being a frat boy with his bros over at Chaw, Chaw, and Chaw or whatever. That's and- Ted Chaw's deal. He's also a guy who's like, you want to get in a plane? I don't know how to fly a plane. <laughs> he rocks. He's I, a great guy. I found those two things completely impossible to bridge. It's like, those are not the same man. I can't even picture when it. When Ted Shaw does not leave his wife for Peggy. I was so sad. I was genuinely hurt. This is of I course going to do it. A few men from Mad Men and due to the fact that Ted Shaw is there and working with them, this is actually Sterling Cooper and Partners. Mm. I'll take my one point. I, yeah, I, yeah. It's a once again a, a very clever trick on my part and uh yes. it's not uh an insult to anyone's intelligence that you walk directly into it. I should have known. I, should, I think I knew that this was post-Lane Price killing himself in the right, office. Right, But right. I couldn't remember when they take his name off the door. You know what I mean? Well, the, the, the thing that's so clever about them taking his name off the door is they also take Don's off, foreshadowing his termination. <laughs> this is a Mad Men podcast now. Okay, our final slide. What fictional company does this character work for? Oh, it's not our final slide. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh shoot i jesse I, it's it's monsters in uh incorporated wait is that both right that's the movie and the name that's that's i was like what's the name of the comfy in monsters incorporated 
And I think it might be Monsters Incorporated. <laughs> this is, of course, Jennifer Tilly as Celia May in Monsters Incorporated, where she works for Monsters Incorporated. Our actual final slide. What fictional company does this character work for? <laughs> Ooh, this feels like a trick. Why, why does it feel like a trick, Hannah, for It feels like a trick because this is Guy Pierce, and it could be Guy Pierce in a Alien Covenant working for the Wayland Company again. But it feels like a trick because, like, would you do that three times? Yes, no. Because the first time he tell. showed up, he was the old ass version of himself from what in that movie yes. is the present mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. But here he's young as fuck. But, like, also maybe this is actually Guy Pierce in Bloodshot working for a different thing. <laughs> and I don't remember the name of that one. Mm. It's just a different type of trick that you might pull. Oh, fuck. You know what I should have done since I have since I have this runner? I fucked up. <laughs> I should have done a fourth one somewhere in here where it's Guy Pierce and Iron Man 3. Ah, oh, it should have been all Guy Pierce's. That man loves to work for a company. I, I guess I'm going to go with Wayland Wayland. I don't know. And your guess for the film? Covenant. Alien Covenant, I guess. This is, of course, I don't know what film it is, so take the point for the film. It could be, I thought it was Prometheus, but I don't fucking know. Uh, and it's, of course, uh, Wayland Corporation for a third time. <laughs> Wayland, Wayland, yeah, cool. Awesome. Wayland, all the way down. Oh, man, so many tricks you could have put. This game could have been entirely Guy Pierce's, and that would have been fun. I was trying to explain this to my girlfriend when she asked me about the game today. I was like, no, you see, the trick is that I don't play a trick. I play them all straight. (laughs) (laughs) 